0: Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse.
1: Today on Tap, we have Oppenheimer, starring Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., and Florence Pugh based on American Prometheus by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin, and written and directed by Christopher Nolan. Welcome back to Rice Smile Films. It's time to continue with our little Nolan cask here with arguably one of the most anticipated films of 2023. And boy, do we have a lot to talk about today. A three-hour-long epic... Uh,
0: Not going to be the show today, though.
1: Yeah, what who well, You never know, right? Yeah. Uh, but what did I tell you when we left the movie? Uh a three hour long history lesson, uh biopic drama mm-hmm. in the middle of summer, mm-hmm. July 21st,
2: yeah.
1: raking in $80 million. this opening weekend. I just, I can't even fathom all of those equations together. And like, none of that should have worked, yep. but I think it speaks to the power of this guy's brand of filmmaking, right? Yeah. People are going to see his movies for a reason. And, Yeah, I think we're going to get a lot of the ins and outs today. So, yeah, let's just get into it. Let's get started. Here's some more of the Hirsch uh, straight bourbon whiskey. Uh, Love this bottle. I Love the the nautical theming of it. Uh, Cheers to you. We've done a a pretty decent damage on this bottle with only, I think, (laughs) an episode and a half. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm. That's a keeper.
1: And I wonder if they have any, I wonder, like, if they make a rye, I'm going to have to look into them a little bit more. Yeah. But, hey, we we have a ton to talk about. Let's dive right into our flight question. You gotta say, um, we went to see this film last night to get extra coverage on the dense content that this film provides us. And I was trying to remember the last movie we went to see together and I was like, oh, of course it was the unbearable weight of massive disappointment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was I was like, that was the one that would like I just had to get up in the middle of that thing because I was I was feeling nauseous. Oh, <laughs> and
0: Jesus, same, that, yeah, yep, I remember that. What did I miss? You didn't miss anything. I literally missed nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Not you missed some nonsense. Nick Cage.
1: And you know, speak
0: to that. A three-hour film. Didn't move a muscle.
1: We didn't get up once. No. Locked in. Second time through also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first time locked in. Mm -hmm. Everyone around us kind of locked in.
0: Yeah. Very still theater.
1: nearly, Nearly sold out in its second week. There's something special going on with this film, and I think we need to, we'll pay attention to the numbers and... Uh, you smartly put it on your list. I did not. Uh, that's because, you know, we'll, we'll get to our numbers and how we have underestimated certain projects in the summer, right? Yeah, Barbie. Yeah, and uh, I think this is a unique moment in box office, you know, summer film history of mm-hmm. this particular type of film coming out when it does, doing the numbers it's doing. Uh, I think it's pretty cool, and I think it's something
0: needed, right? Yeah, you know, you can, can always sort of look at the effectiveness of film. And this only applies to more serious genres. This one won't work in comedy, but mm-hmm. a little bit to there also. How much the audience moves or doesn't move. Mm-hmm. Horror might be the exception because I think sometimes moving in horror is like a way to relieve some of that tension if it's really working. <clears throat> and that goes back to the guy in the front row laughing. Just, oh, and hereditary. That's not was something that's not funny because yeah. uh, you're spun. Mm-hmm. But in 2024, almost, in a world where everything's 140 characters or 35 seconds on TikTok or instant social quick story, yeah, it's really remarkable and rather unprecedented these days to see something that's three and a half hours. That's not unprecedented. We see 230, 240 all the time now, mm-hmm. whether it should be 90 or 240. There's no delineation <laughs> yeah. between those two. Yeah, But to have... The theater still. And we sat about midway up, so I couldn't see everybody behind me, but I could see the stairs. Oh, I was turning around, yeah. (laughs) And there was probably less than five people that got up the whole film for Mm -hmm. three and a half hours, and that includes bathroom breaks and and go get a refill on popcorn or whatever it might be. Yeah, Nolan still proves that if you can take a story that's unapologetic and the studios will get the hell out of the way, and there's not a lot of people they'll do that for, Mm -hmm. people will still buy in. Yeah, Last night proved it. And Mm -hmm. that's not... Some high-gloss, explosive car chase. Yeah. That's pretty heavy drama. Mm-hmm. Oh, heavy drama. Right? It's a lot of scenes of people
1: sitting and talking in rooms. Yeah. And I can't wait to talk about that and why that works in this particular film. And it usually doesn't on, like, television and other yeah. other films. Yeah. But yeah. I think it also speaks to the burnout, right? Yeah. I think we're burned out on high fantasy The Flash mm-hmm. and... Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Uh, that this is, you know, talk about alternative programming. Maybe it was a genius move to release this film in the summer to give, you know, you know, the older generation, your baby boomers, your your Gen X's, you know, my generation, something else to kind of gravitate towards that's equally as exciting. Mm-hmm. Honest to God, I think this film has more edge of your seat moments and intensity. Then The Flash, Dial of Destiny, oh, yeah. uh, maybe anything we've seen
0: this summer. Maybe Mission Impossible at school. a pretty tense film, right? Yeah, yeah. Combined. Okay, so the Mission Impossible is a perfect example because that you have to have white-knuckle moments mm-hmm. in that. And I, in my opinion, yeah. Cruz delivered in that. <laughs> yeah. This had in its own low-key way... White-knuckle, like, is he going to get a security clearance moment? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Able to squeeze every bit of conflict yeah. out of scenes i left last night well we're getting we're getting into the film breakdown now before we get to the flight let's do the flight and then we'll get on with sure. this because i'm sure this is coming back up again
1: getting too excited
0: uh genre wise was thinking last night about all of the things that nolan's tackled and in my mind he has a pretty significantly carved out space in thriller to drama i don't know of any comedy Uh, He does like his material rather seriously. So that sort of took me down a hole of like, well, could he pull off a rom-com? Probably. Could he pull off straight comedy? Yeah, probably. Yeah, in a weird way. Yeah. (laughs) And then I thought, well, could he pull off horror? So this just kept spiraling and spiraling. It got to, I have an idea. I'm going to give you the choice for Nolan to direct any one. Mm -hmm. And one would be series in totality as we know it. Yeah. Of the Universal Classic Monsters, this applies because Universal is is current residence. Yeah, and they, you know, I've got a nice thing. The two of them working mm-hmm. until Universal hopefully doesn't screw it up. Oh, so, I don't.
1: Uh, I don't think they are right. I, I he,
0: nobody's playing in that sandbox for mm-hmm. him. I mean, he's got to be able to say, "I'm out. I'm, I'll walk." Yeah,
1: I mean, if he already had Carte Blanche, post Dark Knight, right? right? Yeah. Goes to another studio and does what he does with this film mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. and we haven't even gotten to award season potential with what this film could provide. Yeah,
0: you could do whatever you want, man. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you get to pick one, yes, and you get to let him reimagine, direct, produce, give him the reins on one Universal classic monster in twenty twenty four. You want to go first or you want me to go first?
1: Uh, uh, I want to go first. I wonder if we have the same answer here. I thought the answer was fairly obvious for me, and I have a pretty interesting honorable mention. Okay. Uh, It's the American, uh, not the American Prometheus, but uh, Prometheus, the modern Prometheus himself, Frankenstein, right? Uh, You know, maybe not so much in the Boris Karloff, Colin Clive version, the James Whale version, but maybe more of like an adaptation of the Mary Shelley novel, which is really heavy into how can I really put this man back together and oh my god I brought him back together and he's like figuring shit out like Mm -hmm. now it's a nightmare uh leaning a little bit more into the text but still having that universal monster aesthetic yeah think of all the machinery and the science that kind of went into this film but with Frankenstein Mm -hmm. I think could be a lot of fun and I'm glad you picked this question because you know I think maybe the the closest thing to horror that he's really covered is insomnia with Al Pacino and Robin Williams. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is a space he might play pretty well in. And you're not telling me he wasn't a fan of those growing up as a kid, right? Had to have been. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's the pretty obvious answer for me. It's a good Killian one. Murphy as uh, Victor Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know who's playing the monster. Uh, but we, we, Tom Hardy? Oh Yeah. yeah. I'm just thinking of the usual suspects, right? Oh, yeah. Um, but that could be pretty good. Sure could.
0: Yeah, I thought about that one, too.
1: He could even bring Kenneth Brandon into the scene. I was like, hey, you want another crack at Frankenstein? <laughs> yeah. Um, do you think that movie's terrible? And that's not terrible, but it's not
0: amazing either. Right, yeah. yeah. That's the first movie that uh, I ever took my wife on a date.
1: You, I think I've heard of that before. <laughs> yeah.
0: Created a monster that night. There
1: you go. Uh,
0: but I'm going to go back to the original Universal Monster all the way to 1927. In fact, it's so old that it's, Loosely classified outside of even the Universal Studio System, if you want to even call it then, back in 1927. Mm-hmm. Subsidiary essentially of Universal, and that's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Mm-hmm. I think the duality and the struggle on the power that Hyde gives Jekyll, repressed Jekyll, and what he's allowed to do as Hyde under the cover of a masquerade in plain sight that is ravenous and lusty and violent and savage. I think plays really well because Nolan is capable with his literary background of understanding duality in a way that, ah, three or four directors I feel comfortable with right now doing it. But outside of that, I don't see it with, um, with a large subsection of, of contemporary working directors. Mm-hmm. I think that movie and that story is well, well, well past a reimagining. I know we got a hint of it in what was going to be the dark universe that never made it with, you know, Russell Crowe and, and The Mummy. Yeah. Briefly. And we've seen some kind of sloppy Russell Crowe, whatever the hell that movie was that he did with, um, where he, Ben Helsing, that's what it was. Oh, yeah. was well, that, oh, that Hugh Jackman? Yeah. Yeah, sorry, my bad. It's time. Yeah. And... If you take that story and you set it now instead of 18 Boring, Mm -hmm. I think it plays even better because the monster of contemporary society that we see every night on the news gets to be explored in short bursts and then well hidden by a man who has been suffocated Mm -hmm. by those stories of, terrible action after debaucherous moment one after another and i think it could really really play what if it goes viral what Mm -hmm. if one of his means and so then now you sort of struggle with ego Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways the jekyll hyde thing plays i think into dr frankenstein a lot of those same characteristics not so much man as god but um man as freed okay so that's where i'm going
1: pretty good choice uh you know, I think he could probably, you know, a modern reimagining I think would be amazing. But you could probably set it in eighteen boring, and I think the aesthetic of it alone would
0: would still work. Be
1: amazing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, any honorable mentions? I have,
0: I have two. I uh, uh, pretty much got all the monsters at this. Yeah, point. there we there we go. Every one of them. Uh,
1: I kicked the tires on uh, on Dracula. But, you know, I, I thought a little bit too much of Cop- Coppola's version and would probably end up being a film very similar to that, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of in-camera, trickery, mm-hmm. that type of gothic atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the one I was kind of curious about was kind of thinking like another like pre-Dracula film was a, version, a non-musical Phantom of the Opera. Uh,
0: that could work. Could be pretty interesting too. So let me ask you a question on that though. Yeah. What if it's not non-musical? Are you doing a musical? Why couldn't I mean, I don't, I'm sure it would slay.
1: I mean, I don't want the Andrew Andrew Lloyd Webber like not. songs and stuff. But yeah, if there was a, like a musical element to it, but like stick to the horror. Mm-hmm. I mean, think of that iconic reveal of when she pulls the mask up and it's this ghoul. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think I, I, I definitely thought, you know, just the grand atmosphere of being at the opera monster at the opera. Mm-hmm. You know, it, so I, I thought that one might work pretty well. Any oh Sorry, I forgot to ask you, any casting on Mr. Uh, Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde? Mm, I didn't even thought about
0: that. Mm. Mm. No, off the top of my head. I mean, there's the usual cast of characters. I, like, I, I would give anything. Is this, is this
1: the time to bring back Guy Pierce?
0: Okay, maybe. Yeah. I could see that. A uh, reunion with Christian Bale? I, Daniel Day-Lewis? Mm. Uh, I know he's... You gotta, he's got to put his shoe cobbler down. Yeah, and probably I know he's had a little break now so maybe he's ready to come back from retirement, but maybe mm-hmm. not. Um, is a, reu- a reunion.
1: I'm I'm, th- I'm going to the 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 Nolan stable. Is this a reunion with Joseph Gordon-Levitt? Yeah,
0: Levitt, I mean Tom Hardy's obviously Leonardo in there too. DiCaprio. Yeah, there, I mean there's lots of players in that uh world that he uses over and over.
1: No one's saying no to that, right?
0: <laughs> How could just, you? Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. I have mention for me, like, and this comes up all the time, so this is nothing you new. Know, I get you. I'm going to choose the Wolfman just mm-hmm. because I also want that. <laughs> I'm in a space where I'm ready for some Universal stuff, man. Yeah. A Universal classic monster stuff. Yeah. It doesn't. It, I, I don't think there's anything in production, so sure. I'm going to be waiting a while. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there is a hope, though, on the horizon, and yeah. that's through the genius of cross-curricular merchandising and Universal Studios Epic Universe that they're releasing, which is supposedly supposed to have a very heavily influenced classic monsters land Mm -hmm. that's got to spin some action into hopefully a film or two and hopefully it's not just for the money grab but sort of you know based on an amusement park hard to sort of justify it's going to be solid
1: great choices great question uh yeah i think we're in agreement though with i think we said it
0: last week too warner brothers how do you let this guy go like, how do you let him leave your studio? Do you like him in a, like, not classic horror, but do you like him in a horror space? Do you see that?
1: I've often thought that Nolan and Stanley Kubrick share a lot of similarities in common, mm-hmm. whereas Kubrick is ever the perfectionist, the technical ma- maestro. Yeah. The difference being is that it doesn't seem that Nolan abuses his actors like
2: Kubrick did.
1: right? But even Kubrick, I mean, space opera epic, uh, mm-hmm. historical Barry Lyndon, uh, he dabbled in horror with The Shining, mm-hmm. so he showed what horror could look like from his perspective on a grand scale. Um, and I know we differ a little bit on that film, but imagine Nolan doing a Shining esque horror epic like that. Yeah. Oh, that I, yeah, I'm there opening night. Sure. but yeah, I'm op- I'm opening night there for whatever he does next. Right,
0: we do have a good opening night coming in horror, and then we'll get on with the show. And that's The Last Voyage of the Demeters mm-hmm. weeks away, maybe. Let's hope <laughs> maybe let's hope. Right. It may be the long last voyage.
1: Excellent. Well, to your, list, to your list, maybe we have a universal monster on the horizon, but let's talk about uh, the, the journey at hand here and our review breakdown of Oppenheimer.
2: A dilettante,
3: a womanizer, unstable, theatrical, neurotic. Brilliance makes up for a lot. I know you have a Nobel Prize. Why aren't you a general? They're making me one for this. We can't end this war if we put me in charge. We've got one hope. A secret laboratory. In the middle of nowhere. Focused on one goal. 1,000 feet tall? But what happens if the chain reaction doesn't stop? It would ignite the atmosphere. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Chances are near zero. Zero. If the truth is catastrophic, didn't need a charge.
1: Can you stop?
3: But later, four, three, two, one.
1: Well, we all know. Stole fire from the gods and gave it to man For this he was chained to a rock And tortured for eternity This is the opening Text on the screen Amidst a massive fire What do you think of that To start the film
0: well, It sets the stakes high mm-hmm. Not only are we talking about putting Oppenheimer in the role of Prometheus but now we're Quoting mythology uh, It's grand and troubling because what it's telling you is we're gonna make this guy Mm -hmm. our chosen hero and then we're going to pillory Mm -hmm. him stated by matthew modine later yeah for the remarkable achievements that we Mm -hmm. have bestowed upon him in this case the gods being the government and that's a scary scary antagonist Mm -hmm. man i wanted to ask you this too
1: it's a character piece right it's biopic sure um he is definitely the protagonist of this film, but would you also say, yeah, at times, he's probably also the antagonist of his own story?
0: Yes, he he's very abrasive. Yeah. Um, and in real life, too. Mm-hmm. I think the tie, and it plays in the film, There's, they, they really lean into this this element of his character. The ties or connections to the Communist Party Although troubling in the late 40s through early 53, right at the McCarthy era, in the film take on a weight that I'm not entirely sure is shared in today's normal lexicon. Mm-hmm. I don't think people worry about it's certainly com, it's certainly a worry for some um, political leanings aside. Like the in, <laughs> invasion of communists, I yes. guess is a thing, right? Yeah. But outside of the spy world or espionage, I don't know really. Yeah. Um, but the movie does a really good job of creating this heavy, heavy apparatus that feels, and this is one of Nolan's great strengths, right? Mm-hmm. How powerful that was back in that time. There's such a a weight from Prometheus stole fire from the gods or was granted fire from the gods or whatever you want to take that. There's such a weight of importance in everything that happens in this. Mm-hmm we talk a lot about runtimes and you know, a common argument on this show is there's enough material for 90 minutes or seven episodes. Mm -hmm. Yet you chose to make two 15 or 12 episodes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. I really thought hard about this last night on the way home after we finished the film. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there was a scene in that film that was wasted. What I mean is every single scene Mm -hmm. had something happen it and by something i don't mean an explanation or exposition yeah something happens in every scene
2: yeah
1: and there's a there's a fury a curiosity to the pace of the film too Yeah, there's like a very steady foot on the gas type of momentum propelling Mm -hmm. everything forward a lot of it's done through dialogue and the sharp uh you know barbs being tossed back and forth between all these characters it felt very Aaron sorkin like to me at times yeah well said yep yes uh, maybe a little bit better than Aaron Sork in it at, at, at times. <laughs> yeah. Coming in hot. Uh, but I think, yeah, if you're gonna have a film that has, you know, next to no action. I mean, this is a, a film set all around World War II with next to no war in it. Right. The warring is in uh these uh rooms and uh tables and barracks, uh, hearings yeah. in in and barracks, right? Barracks at Los Angeles, yeah. So yeah, you gotta you gotta find a way to get the the drama out. I'm with you, Matt. I think I was uh a little nervous. I was like three hours is a long time for Mm -hmm. a biopic. I'm like, is this JFK? It's like, what are we doing here? Yeah. yeah. Uh, But I think I'm with you. I don't think any scene overstays its welcome. I don't think, I think every scene has its uh, intricate purpose into the telling of this very complicated man. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And we're doing uh, another bit of a fragmentation with the story. It's very memento like without really doing it. Like we're not doing every scene backwards leading to the beginning. Right. Right. But there are three, three big storylines at play here that are intercut uh sporadically. Mm-hmm. Uh one is uh this uh security clearance hearing that he has found himself in. And that's the first one we start with. And what's the title is uh fission?
0: Yeah. Yes. Fission and then fusion. Yes.
1: And uh, the fission scenes are done in in color, and it's this yeah this little tiny little room. It's maybe about you know this little room we're in right now is maybe half the size of that room. Yeah, uh, you got oh man, Mr. Claude Rains himself, Jason Clark leading this charge. He's really good in this movie too, and uh, I don't know if anyone because the cast is so stacked. If anyone's really given him his uh, his due, and, and I'll give it to him right now. Yeah. I think it's a difficult because he's also another kind of antagonist hired by someone else. We're about to find out later. Boy, aren't we? But I think he more than holds his own against all the people he's interviewing, trying to almost like he's he's digging for more than what's expected um, based on orders, right? Yeah. And it's really sinister without, you know chagrining like a villain, right, twirling your mustache. Mm-hmm. You you really kind of don't know what this guy's aiming at other than to destroy Oppenheimer here in this not even a hearing. It, there's no it's not a court proceeding, there's no defense. Yeah. It's just are you uh well-intentioned enough uh, without ties to communist uh parties in order for us to grant you security clearance to the nation's
0: top secrets. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a question. Did you ever see Chappaquiddick? Yes. Jason Clark's really good Oh yeah. As yeah, yeah Ted Kennedy in that. And I thought when he showed up for a minute in that hearing, that you thought he Ted Kennedy. Well, no, because <laughs> that, that would have been pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. And I could see Ted Kennedy having his tentacles in that maybe a little premature Ted Kennedy's run, Yeah, but the Kennedy's by proxy do have a role in this film. Kind of a big one. Yeah. I mean, it's one line, but it's a mother of a line. I got a, I got a great uh,
1: parallel of what that line is to another Nolan film. Oh, we'll, we'll get to it later. Okay. But you know, Clark's been great for years. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Back to Zero Dark Thirty, uh, Everest. He's just never the guy in the spot. And when he is the lead, like in Pet Cemetery.
0: they it's Pet Sematary? It's garbage.
1: <laughs> Not his fault, though. Not his fault. No, it's the, usually the film and the story just collapsing under that.
0: That's a maddening story. Yeah. That is such a high concept idea by Stephen King that they have mostly failed on twice. Mm-hmm. But the first one is somehow better than the second one. And the first one was made for like 16 cents in a roll of duct tape. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, back to Jason Clark. Yeah. He's perfect in that role. Yeah. Roger Rob. Yeah. Good for him now because we know how it sort of works with Nolan. Once you get in good and you deliver for him on the screen, he does tend to go back to the well. Yeah. And I'm not, <laughs> this is not the Jason Clark pro podcast where this guy needs more material. I'm not saying that at all, mm-hmm. but I think there is a notable piece in the, the acting world for the person who is the character actor that never quite gets there and delivers on those characters over and over and over mm-hmm. because they don't get the fortune yeah. of that part. Mm-hmm. And I think Cillian Murphy mm-hmm. or Killian, I'm not sure if it's C or K. I think it's K. Yeah. Okay. Uh Killian Murphy will go with that. Cause yeah, well, I'm not Irish, so let's go with it. Mm-hmm. Has sort of suffered from that up until this point. We can say Peaky Blinders, which I find to be a completely unwatchable show, because I can't understand a word they say, and it's dry. (laughs) He's sort of suffered from the same thing until now. He's not now. No. He's not now. Not at all. And so maybe Jason Clark got something bigger coming down the road. Absolutely. And then... uh, Speaking of that, did you read the the Matt Damon story about this? Oh, yeah. How he got the role? No. Well, no, this is different. So I guess Matt Damon... And his wife, and God bless him for not marrying a starlet. He mm-hmm. married a, a waitress and they've yeah. done pretty well, but I guess they're going through some struggles and they are seeing a marriage counselor. Yeah. She was pissed off because he's working too much, which, yeah, he never turns down yeah. a movie. This is the yeah. St- It's yeah. the same yeah. one? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. The Christopher Nolan clause? Yeah. Take it. No, it's just like,
1: he's like, yeah, I told my wife I would, uh, you know, promise to take a break from acting, focus on family, and but he's like, if, you know, Nolan comes and asks, to, like, I, I want to go make a movie with him. And sure enough, what happened? Sure enough. Called him. Major part. And I think a crucial role, and he's also pretty good in the movie too, right? He is. Yeah. Pretty good year for Matt Damon. uh, Air and now this one, right? Yeah, I just think it's funny that,
0: yes, a good year for him. Yeah. Uh, That, okay, we're in this therapy and we're going to try to fix things, but... This has got to happen.
1: Exactly. <laughs> you, you make your exceptions for these auteurs that you know when, because right. uh, Matt Damon previously uh, worked with him on Interstellar. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you had these good experiences that, you know, if it comes calling again, you want to make yourself open and available to it. Uh, it's it, just, right. yeah, I want to be a part of that, whatever. I don't even have to read a script. You just, I just want to be involved with the, the process.
0: This keeps happening, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, trust me I get the family thing and I get the movie plays in this space too with Kitty and her struggles with domestic life by herself as you know Roberts off playing God mm-hmm. Tom Brady and Giselle mm-hmm. enough work yeah you have made enough money yeah come home and do family and it's it's such a it's a, a centuries-old argument mm-hmm. about what role and how we're gonna play it and um there's so many things in this film that I find to be running parallel to the stories of the people that are in it. Mm-hmm. And you know, maybe in three and a half hours in a movie that I'm, I'm not going to lie, like I'm wildly fond of, mm-hmm. uh, you just draw greatness where you can find it. Mm-hmm. Or maybe there's just an intrinsic serendipity yeah. that just worked out that made this believable yeah, because it's believable
1: well, we get to the next big piece of the equation. God, we're here. not even out
0: of the f- opening credits yet, Yeah. Are we?
1: Uh, so, Fusion. This is the black and white yeah. portion of the film. And this all concerns uh, Louis Strauss, who was chairman of the AOC, uh, this Atomic Commission. And yeah. now he's up for a cabinet posting under
0: Eisenhower. Uh, Eisenhower. Eisenhower? Yeah. Or, Senator from Wyoming under Eisenhower's mm-hmm. administration. Mm-hmm. Secretary of Commerce, which is an odd... Decision, but okay. And so this is
2: a
1: a portion of a film that, you know, doesn't even feature the primary character of the film in it, other than as an objective participant in the memories and past of Louis Strauss Mm -hmm. played to a T by Robert Downey Jr. Now we've spoken very highly of him, and you know, when we've covered the Iron Man films, we've talked a lot about his particular story and the drug abuse and getting clean and Mm -hmm. you know having this second career resurgence. Uh I'm kind of glad he's done with the Marvel Spotlight, which is, you know, he's playing a caricature of himself, which is really he's really good at. He's so charismatic as Tony Stark. But him playing this particular character, a villain in the film, right? Uh, an opposing force to Oppenheimer. Yep. I'm just in awe watching watching what what he's able to do when he's playing an actual character,, yeah. a real life person, yeah. but just disappearing into a role and then you see the acting chops that this guy really has, right
0: it becomes hateable because you know what the race is in this film, mm-hmm. like how important the work that they were doing was. And this, the totality of what's going to happen and how you stomach and go to bed every night with knowing that you wiped out 220,000 people mm-hmm. with not directly because you didn't push the button, but you pushed the starting button. Yeah.
1: You built the button.
0: And what I love about this, and it happens with lots of characters relationship between Oppenheimer and Einstein, the relationship with Oppenheimer and kind of everybody. Mm-hmm is the weight that ego carries in this movie. Yeah, And Lou Strauss might be yeah. the leader in the clubhouse after round four Yeah, with what that ego is. Literally dissecting this man as the story progresses mm-hmm. in black and white, which is a little uncommon, right? To go mm-hmm. black and white as present. A mm-hmm. little bit out of the realm of normalcy, if I'm right. Mm-hmm. With Nolan, because I believe in in uh, Memento, it was backwards. It wasn't black and white.
1: No, black and white was the forward
0: stuff. Black and white's the most most present. Okay, so check the, all that then. This guy's career, where he served his his country in whatever capacity he has, and relatively intelligent, because I think he said he has a degree, uh, mm-hmm. engineering as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Self made man is struggles with. <laughs> one innocuous conversation that he doesn't even hear. And then a throwaway comment from another man with an ego in a hearing. That's oh, yeah. the isotope shipping. Mm-hmm. And he holds that grudge for a decade plus 15 years. Yeah. And then this ego mm-hmm. cannot be put away because he gets no credit for finding the guy that saved the world. He can make that, he's going to make him pay. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's a great villain mm-hmm. and, I don't want to destroy the world and roll over rubble. Mm-hmm. I want to find a way to destroy save my, this
1: and destroy this man. Yeah.
0: Cause I want to save my ego. I'm in.
1: Yeah. There's a fantastic, oh, I'll save that line. Cause you know, it does speak to that from Mr. Han Solo himself uh, uh, towards the end of the, of the film there. But yeah, mm-hmm. Downey's casting in this thing. I think he even said something. He was like, he's like, yeah, it was good to kind of, I was a little nervous to kind of get back out there after Iron Man, you know, the post Marvel thing. But like when he, when Nolan calls you, like you just you just answer you like whatever in co- whatever capacity, and mm-hmm. that's a really good partnership right there. Whatever Nolan does next, I think he's bringing Downey Jr. with him in some role fashion because that works really well in this film, that performance. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about the man of the hour. This is the third storyline here, and we kind of get in a little bit late. I like this. I, I like that we don't have to spend time with like Kid Oppenheimer. Right? We get in late with this guy. Um, at school already, right? Uh, overseas, abroad. We see kind of how just, you know, aloof he is. Brilliant mind, mm-hmm. but struggles with time management. Struggles in a few. And, and his, uh, the way he thinks and deciphers things. And this is where I think where the IMAX is, like, really used to, like, a great potential. Mm-hmm. This particle fission uh collider mind that it like cuts to of like, if this is what this guy's like, just thinking just his brain, he can't turn that brain off when he goes to sleep. Right. Nightmare. Uh, just constantly thinking about the rotating world of quantum physics. Yeah. Shit. You'd go insane instantly. And yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of showing in his schoolwork here. And he, and he, we see that he's got a little bit of a dark side here. Uh He's like, well, this teacher ain't going to let me see an icon that I look up to. uh Niels Bohr. Right. Yep. Kenneth Branagh. Uh, I'm going to poison my teacher here. <laughs> Just what? <laughs> yeah. With this cyanide-laced uh, apple, which he instantly has regrets about, and is like, I need to go right that wrong. But we see him going toe-to-toe with these huge scientific minds. Uh, Niels Bohr, played by Kenneth Branagh, uh, the actual he- Heisenberg, uh, mm-hmm. right, who's going to lead kind of the German atomic uh, uh, project. Yeah. And they're all in awe of who Oppenheimer is, what he's able to do. Uh, but Kenneth Branagh tells him the best is, you know, this isn't the type of work you should be doing. Like the actual practicality of it, you need to go someplace that lets you stretch that thinking. Yeah,
0: um, yeah, go, go find it. See, see what you can, what you can do with that quantum physics, mm-hmm. a rather untapped area in the scientific world, and there's no school, stateside, that offers anything remotely close to what Oppenheimer needs. So this is a really interesting and important part of his journey because we get to see his involvement in a rather interconnected scientific community. With Heisenberg, it's brief, but they do run in the same circles. We come to find out that he's known Einstein for years and has generally dismissed him and, dare I say... Doesn't hold a grudge because I don't think he matters enough in Oppenheimer's mind because the science has left Einstein's theory of relativity in the dust, and he doesn't see him as useful anymore, which that, to me, was really apparent last night. Yeah. And then, of course, the Niels Niels Bohr. Yeah. And then also the professor that he tries to poison, which, doggone it, if the name doesn't escape me right now. I got
1: got the cast list up because we'll be doing this a lot. Blackert. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. how he shows up later in the film who wrote an article about uh, his communist ties or the communist
1: ties. And then the, the shifting from world war II to the cold war, right? That this moment is what started it, right? Almost kind of like a, Sticking like a, it to a slam
0: piece, right? So <laughs> what I'm getting at in all this, with the exception maybe of Bohr, mm-hmm. is we're interjected into this world where there's a race that almost doesn't feel like the quest for science and knowledge, but the quest for being the one who finds it first. Yeah. I, I find that in including Strauss, I find that entire world, Oppenheimer, Strauss, Eisenberg, Bohr, Einstein to be ridiculously overindulged in their own importance. And that's not to say they're not Oppenheimer's. The movie is the case for Oppenheimer by a mile. It's like sports. It's a different type of competitiveness. Being the winner in this because the only stakes are the the free world. Mm -hmm. But they're all egomaniacs. Oh yeah, and General Grove says as much. Yeah, some I forget what the line that he's like. He's
1: like. the subtlety of a scientist like, yeah, if I ever meet one, I'll, I'll let you know or something. Right.
0: Yeah. Basically admitting like all of you physicists are complete pricks, mm-hmm. uh, but I have to have you now. So mm-hmm. let's see if we can find a way to make your prickishness and my mm-hmm. discipline of military sort of jive here. Yeah. Kind of do.
1: But I really like what's kind of intercut with this too, is when Strauss invites Oppenheimer to come lead this new division at Princeton, right? Mm-hmm. It's a personal invitation. Hey, you get your own house. Uh, Einstein's here if you want. he's like, Oh yeah, but I've known him for years. And I like how this meeting starts. It's almost, you know, hero and villain meeting for the first time. Yeah. Uh, And the music's very jovial. It's very friendly. Like these guys are going to be buds and you slowly see this thing just kind of fall apart. Right. Um, Ego playing a, a bit, a big part of that. Now, as, you know, Oppenheimer makes his way stateside, uh, Berkeley, to, you know, introduce the U.S., the stateside, to the world of quantum physics. A mm-hmm. uh, new concept in, what, nineteen early 30s, right? Yeah. Yeah. 33, 34, I think we're floating around here. Mm-hmm. And I like his, like, oh, we got to talk one thing because it was something I mentioned to you. Dude, Nolan's you res- pulled Josh Hartnett from the ashes. <laughs> as another fellow faculty member Ernest Lawrence here I think he's pretty good in this movie too and I'm like where's this guy been
0: <laughs> uh, yeah what was the show that he had with um, oh, Penny Dreadful that's it mm-hmm. again what happened mm-hmm. another but he's back I guess in some manner and uh, and fine yeah. I never thought Josh Hartnett was a bad actor mm. I just don't know what happened Pick, picked and passed on different roles right I guess
1: so well, he was at one point, I know he was... Well, black Black he didn't do him any favors. Yeah, that probably didn't help, right? Uh, and I know at one point he was being, you know, floated around as the name of Superman for the Wolf King Peterson Batman versus Superman film that they were trying to get off the ground. Mm-hmm. I know he had ties to Batman at some point. So, you know, he's been kind of around a lot of those conversations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just kind of the, the those roles just dried up here. But this is a good little part for him here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the stuff that takes place at, at Berkeley that kind of leads us to the forming of this Manhattan Project is, you know, it's uh, don't be holding union meetings. Uh, these people that want to do this, uh, some of them are communists. Oh, Oppenheimer, your brother is thinking about joining the communism party. Right. Uh, you're about to begin a sexual tryst with a communist Uh very complicated man, but he falls to his own devices, right? He kind of allows it to happen. He allows these things to, you know, envelop his life and make make things even more complicated. And even in a little bit when he's about to start a relationship with uh Kitty, Emily Blunt's character, she's a married woman when he meets her and gets her pregnant. And he has to dissolve one relationship. He has to go tell his side piece that we can't do this anymore. <laughs> I didn't know he was such a... Lothario? Yeah. Jeff Goldblum (laughs) of the scientific community.
0: Goldblum could have (laughs) played Oppenheimer. (laughs) Yeah. (coughs) Dude, how's Goldblum not in this movie? Exactly. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, I didn't know that about him either. I knew about an affair, but this movie kind of hints that there are multiple, even ones that we don't know about. Mm -hmm. That Ruth woman Mm -hmm. that's mentioned. How many more? Yeah. You brought up something that I thought was uh, a key part into what allows this story historically and on the silver screen to happen, and that's curiosity. Look, I think an overplayed character arc in a film for a scientist would be, he was curious. Like, that's pretty weak writing. Mm -hmm. Except when the curiosity is such that the sound is deafening to the audience in the theater when you're watching his curiosity endeavor into unknown realms. And there were moments, first time and last night too, when we get into the workings of his mind that have such a level of sound that I wanted to plug my ears. When we are watching, it almost looks like the strings of an instrument Mm. vibrate through and over each other. I know it's not. I know Mm. it's the collision of molecules and the space in between that quantum physics plays in like I'm some quantum physicist, but as best I can tell. Mm -hmm. And he's laying there in bed. That was so loud. Yeah. This man is and, haunted by... And, and
1: I think intentionally, right? Yes, for we, sure. I think we talked a lot about, you know, in Tenant, you know, the sound design. And I think that's just why maybe Tenant didn't work as well for us at home mm. in the pandemic, mm. which was, you know, yeah. it's hard for me to calibrate my sound system in my living room to an IMAX theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm with you. I think it's intentional that it's sure. an overwhelmingly sensory experience to put us in the mind of this guy of how chaotic it is. And I think it's done really well. I can't wait to talk about the scene when he gives the post-bombing speech and it's just the the stomping and the shaking and the silence and then the shouting. It's a chaotic
0: headspace that this guy's in. If this man lives in a world that's the collision of atoms into other atoms and what happens to the space in between as it's used up pre- and Mm post-collision, then... That's everything. That's the travel of sound through the air. That's every motion and movement that occurs. And essentially, you get the feeling that beautiful mind, Ron Howard, Russell Crowe, like this man is drowning in his own genius. Mm -hmm. If this man is drowning in his own genius, then I buy that you want to, back to the Lothario idea, find an escape that gives you reprieve, even for the briefest briefest of moments. Mm -hmm. If you are studying life, And the movement of life at the subatomic level and the space that the atoms collide at. Do you really give a rip, Jesse, Mm -hmm. about what a piece of paper says legally on who you're married to? Yeah. I don't want to say he's above it because he's not above social norms in this movement. Quite frankly. What does he say a couple of times? He's like, brilliance makes up for a
1: lot. That's kind of like the way he justifies.
0: (laughs) I don't see him (laughs) adhering to the standard provincial ideas. I mean, I like this woman. Our hands just touched. We are two atoms that are about to collide and collide hard. Mm -hmm. And I want to see what that looks like and feels like, because I think in a way it lets him play in the space as quantum physically charged. Mm -hmm. We see it when he breaks the glasses in the wall and he's watching the way they explode and how they bounce off other objects. We also get a really important moment with um, Tadlock. What the hell's her first name? Gene Tadlock. Gene Tadlock. The first time that he beds her is at a social as well, essentially, communist mm-hmm. meeting. And it almost seems like, to me, two-thirds of, or half the way through, he loses interest because he sees the books on her shelf behind her. Yeah. Or maybe it's his shelf. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're in his room.
1: Yeah, it's his room, yeah.
0: Okay, so he sees his, his own bookcase full of his... I mean, she's fully mounted, like, mm-hmm. naked, yeah. ready, and they're going. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, his he wavers, and I don't know if he loses it or what happens, but she jumps off in a rather disgusted manner mm-hmm. and then goes and grabs a book and puts it up against her chest. And as he reads it, seems like he gets reinvigorated. And she's writing him and he's like, I become reading death. Sanskrit. I become dead. The destroyer of worlds. Holy crap. Brother, that is loaded. So yeah. he's okay. This not to be too graphic, but he, they are, yeah, he's, they're, he's insider. Yeah, they're in it, yeah. And which at its core level is the base to create life. Mm-hmm he's already lost interest in that once with someone that he, we come to find he really truly does like. Yeah. And then she's re aroused him with Sanskrit and the Sanskrit packages. I am become death. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. What are, can that go down as one of the most loaded sex scenes of all time? Yeah. Right. Right. Mm-hmm.
2: Christopher it's, Nolan's it's, a genius. It's
0: been talked about a lot just because of like, oh my God, the, the,
1: the sex scenes in this film, which I think people writing articles about this stuff, like you just get over it. Like people can fuck on screen. It doesn't, Yeah. let's grow up, man. Like, it's just like, it's just, it's just part of it. Like to take that energy anyway. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think it's really well done. And I think the one later in mm-hmm. the the security clearance uh, and she, Emily Blunt Kitty has to watch, you know, through mm-hmm. memory Mm-hmm. In front of her, well, he's telling the story about Gene. I know who Gene was. I can only see my see them together. Yeah, fucking in the mm-hmm. on, at the table here, and that scene is wild, right? Wild. <laughs> uh, but I think like not not just for like shock. I don't think it's for shock value. I think it's for character character development value. Like we see the resentment Kitty has about this particular aspect of his life. And I think that plays into it later because you know what? She's about to go bad for her husband in a little bit.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In about two hours. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> But uh, as angry as she can be. And she has a fantastic line later when we'll get to the Gene suicide bit because, you know, that's kind of like a loaded sequence in itself. She has a fantastic line that she gives him there. Uh, but let's talk about the creation of this uh, Manhattan Project here. So, you know... Josh Hartnett's character, Ernest Lawrence, you know, Matthew Modine and this other guy uh, are coming to talk to him about this potential thing. They can't even, they're not even inviting Oppenheimer at this point because he has all these ties to communism, right? Yeah. He's inviting all this, the conflict and everything. But eventually they they wheel him over. Um, I mean, we meet Matt Damon and this is where we kind of lay the groundwork of what this project needs to be, what it should be compartmentalized compartmentalization, right? Let's keep all the secrecy within this. How would you do this? Pitch me on how you would build a weapon of mass destruction. Uh, Cause we have to mine uranium and plutonium. Uh, we'll have theory here in Berkeley, and then we'll go to the middle of the desert connected by railroad genius, by the way, uh, middle of nowhere, 40 miles in either direction, set up a secret base where we can do all our testing, building, a compilation of what we plan to do. It's very exciting. Like once the film reaches this, like now
0: we're like, now we're going here. The other thing too, that's important in the scene that you just talked about as we pitch general groves on Los Alamos Mm -hmm. is that the axis powers Mm -hmm. have an 18 month head start. So while they're working on developing their version of the same thing, Mm -hmm we're an even further lot behind because although we have theory working at Berkeley, we have to spend another two months building this town.
1: Yeah. Another fantastic line from Oppenheimer Murphy here is our one chance is anti-Semitism." I love this. Yeah. The fact that, you know, he's hired Heisenberg mm-hmm. this Jewish man mm-hmm. to lead his atomic research division. And that the only way we can maybe catch up to them is, the they fact that this. They, the fact that he resents him as a Jew, and doesn't give him the necessary
0: resources to succeed. Yeah, yeah. Ego, right? Oh, good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hitler's yep. ego. Yeah. It, stone cold hatred too. Mm-hmm. So, so that's good, Jesse. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So 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 that that particular aspect. Uh, the thing about Oppenheimer too. I mean, he did come from a bit of a wealthy family. They grew up, by, I think, it's New York, Connecticut area, uh, but spent a lot of time in New Mexico. North of Santa Fe, Los Alamos area cabin, and loved it. I mean the, what? Yeah, the okay. hor- The horseback riding, the just being out in nature, just the desolate and you know, maybe that was calming to his very extremely busy mind, right? Being, you know, in total isolation compared to just with everything,
0: right? Yeah, for those that are listening across the not to I'm not Oppenheimering this by any means, but across mm. the globe and it is global. Mm-hmm. I have to tell you, the scenes that you see when they arrive at Los Alamos and there's nothing there, it's a very, very true depiction of what most of New Mexican desert looks like. Mm-hmm. And for all of the secrecy that Los Alamos offers, which makes sense, mm-hmm. it also gives Oppenheimer another parallel to his, his animus which is those that doubted quantum physics because it just seems to be so obscure and so distant and so isolated from the scientific community. He has one student when he first starts teaching his class mm-hmm. at, at Berkeley, by the way. Mm-hmm. Los Alamos is the same thing. Yeah. Distant and isolated and impossible. And his buddy even tells him as much.
1: Well, they're all kind of outcasts in their own weird, strange little way. I mean, they yeah. all think in a way that's you know beyond us. So how do socially? Had You're you, not a quantum physicist. No, I'm not. No, I'm failing this class. Yeah, me too. Uh, I'm not even getting in the door. Yeah, it's just like you know, I was. just Like you know, physics and chemistry in high school was troubling for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're just film nerds. There's a reason I gravitated towards the arts. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But they all kind of gravitate toward, uh, together. They all speak the same language. Mm-hmm. They the same lingo. Yeah. Uh, and I love this assembly of all these brilliant minds—from you know, uh, Jack Quaid from *The Boys* mm-hmm. to uh, mm-hmm. uh, who else? Uh, what what what's his name from this film? Is just a who's who of like I I recognize that guy. I recognize that guy. Uh, as they, as they come Oh, Josh Peck from, I know him from Drake and Josh on Nickelodeon. Mm. <laughs> he, uh, he plays, uh, the guy that, you know, pushes the button, uh, at the Trinity test. Mm. So this assembly of these guys, it's exciting. You know, Matt Damon telling me it's the most important thing to ever happen in the history of the world. Fuck. <laughs> like, it's just like, get on board, like bring your families. And I think Oppenheimer's good in that. I mean, they're about to spend a good four ish years here at Los Alamos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You got to build a town. You got to, and Take a kid, lot of babies and deliver oh them. Oh my God! Yeah, ten babies a month later <laughs> in the film.
0: People are
2: bored.
1: No, no. He's like, I, I, don't have anything to say about birth control, or like, I have no control over birth control. <laughs> Kitty walks up with child. Yeah, two. Yeah, and they already have a kid. Mm-hmm. Which, well, let's talk about that because I think that's a very troubling, uh, yeah. you know, point in the film too. Which yes. is, and I think let's give our kid away for a minute. I think Emily Blunt's fantastic in this film. Uh, great actress. We've, ta- I think we've done three of her films already on this podcast. Wow. Uh, two quiet places and the jungle cruise. Mm-hmm. But she's really great. Hard-drinking, this character, this real-life person, right? Hard-drugging in real life, too. Yeah. And, you know, they have a kid, and, you know, they're so busy with, uh, you know, I'm going to go do the Manhattan Project. And she's, like, there with, like, a bottle of Hirsch bourbon. It's like, I've been looking after that kid all fucking day. Like I, You go to him. You go do it. And Oppenheimer's like, I got to go take him to uh, my buddy, my, my communist buddy, Uh, Chevalier Chevalier, yeah And uh, you gotta watch this kid for me These parents having to like just admit failure uh, And we can't put all our stock in this right now Because there's a
0: a bigger thing
2: on the horizon
0: The singular focus of having to get this done Mm -hmm. And the weight of this doesn't ever stop Mm -hmm. So the time element is a lot just to begin with It's either us or them And if it's them then it's curtains for us so we have to win this race no matter what and then as we're going about this process of trying trying to win this race oppenheimer has to turn from scientist who socially may not at the beginning of the movie be the most likable guy he's a bit it's yeah. a bit off-putting mm-hmm. has to start juggling all these wicked egos to keep his team in place because two things happen if you lose that key component then you've lost your metallurgist mm-hmm. or They've taken their ideas, and Grubbs makes a throwaway line that's kind of a joke, out into the the non-governmentally protected world, mm-hmm. and God only knows what then is available to be stolen or ripped away from that. So all of that, yeah. in addition, his hard-drinking wife and their family, there's just no shortage in this film of times we see how troubling... This task was Jesse. Just the task alone of we have to win this race would crush most people. Yeah, I almost wonder. And I don't know this, I should have looked Mm. to have that kind of singular focus to give away your kid to deal with all of the other governmental bullshit in a world of science, especially a quantum physicist that doesn't have the regulations of you know, force times mass equals speed or right, like all of those. General rules, mm, mm-hmm. uh, playing in this open space and then being stuffed in this open idea with lots and lots of flexibility and variability, and might I dare say, daily discovery, mm-hmm. smashed down into this structured environment that has a deadline, and the deadline is mankind's yeah. demise. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how he did it, yeah. Tadlock helps maybe affairs help maybe because it's a break. I'm not. And I'm not advocating that, and that my life is not that, so it yeah, doesn't matter. Yeah. But I, the weight, Jesse. Yeah. What about the atomic weight? Yeah,
1: I thought about you a lot when I first saw this film because you know oh, we had thank a, you. we had a conversation yesterday. Brilliance pays. You know, brilliance is needed record. Brilliance <laughs> makes up for a lot. Uh, no, I think about you a lot when I watch films and just yeah. how, how you watch things as opposed to how I do. And it's similar and different at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we had talked off mic about like, okay, act two of this film is going to be the Manhattan Project, right? It's going to be building this bomb. How do we find an active antagonist uh, uh, yeah. in Los Alamos while they're doing this thing? Now, I the active antagonist, I think, is rooted in, I think, a couple very interesting conflicts. Uh, let's talk about the first one here. Uh, Bert, uh, Benny Safty, Safty brothers who, if you haven't seen uncut gems, ladies and gentlemen, get on that film. Yeah. Uh, plays Edward Teller here, this recruited scientist here who has an agenda of his own, which is why are we fucking screwing around with atomic energy when we should be building a hydrogen bomb? Yep. You want to talk about kilotons. I want to talk about megatons. Mm-hmm. And Robert's like, we can't even go there yet, right? We're not building that. We're building this. This is enough. Uh, I think that's a pretty interesting uh, oppositional force, and it's actually going to propel us into the third act of the film, which is if we build one bomb, what's going to happen when someone wants to build a bigger bomb?
0: Right, escalates.
1: And when you look at the you know the size comparison of what was dropped at Trinity, Hiroshima. And then what an actual H-bomb does, an H-bomb would obliterate, uh, like, a corner of Japan. Hmm. It wouldn't even be close, right? Hmm. It's it's such a huge weapon. Uh, and I think it worries Oppenheimer here from the, the get-go. I mean, I think the mission is still to sally forth and and see this through to the end. But, oh, my God, like, they are going to want to build bigger and more. And then the Russians are going to want to do it, and if we do it first, they're going to want to do it, and it's an arms race, right? It's what the right, he was right. It's what the fifties and the sixties was all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, did, you know, what, what did you think of that? And I think his performance is pretty good in this film. He has a fantastic line at the Trinity site, which just has killed me on both viewings. Which is, is it rubbed in? He puts sunscreen on his face because of you know the 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 light from this. No one knows what's going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. And he turns to Jack Quaid, uh, son of Dennis Quaid. Actually, did you know that the uh, the guy from the Boys? I did know that. Yeah, yeah. Is the sunscreen rubbed in? He's like, yeah, no, I man, it's all
0: kicked on his face. Imagine <laughs> all that dirt and everything. Oh yeah, yeah. I really uh, that, that that that's that's a good moment of levity for me. He announces his presence right away, mm-hmm. and that is when he walks in to the room that's going to be the first meeting of all the great scientific minds that that Oppenheimer has wrangled together at Los Alamos. Mm-hmm. Oppenheimer says, hello, in his most friendly social way that he can be. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I've got something I want to show. And he's like, we should wait for the others. And he's like, no, let's get started. Like he, that room is full of those type A Mm -hmm. singular focus guys. And so my worry, like you said, was, is this going to be the battle of the man versus the man himself? And Mm -hmm. and the the consequences of this this task Mm -hmm. I've taken on? Yes. The answer was yes. Mm -hmm. But the answer is also, Yes to Oppenheimer and these demons that he's going to have to exercise after he recreates them in his own self. Who's on his side? Mm -hmm. Are there any spies? Who's looking out for their own best interests? How many people are using this as a launching pad into something that's not what I'm after? Mm -hmm. And I need all of these people, so I can't just say, piss off, get your hydrogen bomb out of here. Well,
1: do you remember what Teller comes in with? The first is like, I've done the the, calculations if we set this off. We're going to
0: burn the atmosphere up. Yeah,
1: and everyone's like, oh, my God. <laughs> so he distracts from the meeting, right? He sabotages the meeting before it even starts.
0: Which gets to a really interesting point. let us um, I'm sort of taking you off the question that you asked me, which mm-hmm. was protag, antag, and there's, there's plenty of active antagonists. Oh, we'll we get there, we'll get there. There's key
1: scenes taking place in this portion of the film.
0: So one of the things that I think is highlighted with Teller's miscalculation is the importance? We talked about this last night when we walked out. The importance of mathematics, mm-hmm. the actual tools that structured academia would give you and teach you, necessary to perform the theory. Yeah. The tractor at the construction site. There's the architect that envisions it, and then there's the tractor. So if the mathematics are the tractor, Rob, Robert Oppenheimer is not good at the mathematics. Like he can figure out a basic equation. Mm-hmm. But the the process, the labor part of this, mm-hmm. not the dreamy part of this. Yeah, I'm not going to say he sucks at it because he danced circles around anybody that you and I know. But in this, in the in the physicist community, I think he's under under performer in that. So it gets back to another parallelism that I see in this film. Nolan's upbringing in film was not in film at all. In fact, it was in story but literature, English. Yeah. So in a sense, he's an Oppenheimer because I do think Christopher Nolan is a genius. I'm not saying that his films are going to mm-hmm. solve world problems or yeah. save the Jews from Nazi occupation. I'm not saying anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's different levels. But he sort of shrugged off. Here's how you make a movie. Here's your screenwriting class. Here's the, the tools, the mathematics, if you will, of movie making.
1: Literally his second movie, which we did last week, here's how you make a movie. And I'm just going to like essentially rearrange everything you knew about how a story is constructed.
0: Your inciting instance (laughs) is going to be the end of this film. Don't like it. Don't fucking watch it. You're going to miss a genius movie though. I'm going to tell it to you backwards and forwards. In different colors. Right? Yeah. Okay. So he thumbs his nose up at all of the... Structured necessities that are important in filmmaking, as prescribed by Ivory Tower ideas, which leads to the argument of why they probably stalled out at the university level. That's not to say anything bad, but it's tough, and this structure limits you. Oppenheimer needs mathematicians around because I'm assuming this teller gentleman is a better mathematician than Oppenheimer is, and even his equations don't come out. Oppenheimer's Nolan in that matter, Jesse. Mm -hmm. The dreamer that doesn't adhere to A plus B equals C. Nolan and Oppenheimer both buck the system, go about it in their own way and say, I have a bigger idea and this idea is so big that it's going to win regardless of what you said. And if there's any more proof that we needed prior to this, it's Inception. You cannot make a movie that is, it was all a dream. Mm-hmm. That's the first lesson I learned in screenwriting. <laughs> you can't wake up and the twist of the un- on page 97 is, it was all a dream. That's cheap. Mm-hmm. Unless you do it like he did it. Yeah. So, again, it's a perfect selection for the director yeah. of this film. Because I think he gets Oppenheimer because a little bit he's like, or maybe a lot of
1: it, yeah. like himself. Well, think of Oppenheimer too. Like you just said, is maybe not you know the best mathematician, but you know he's a capable, great collaborator, right? Ah, putting together ooh. all these great minds to mm. you're working on this, and yeah, we'll put you in, we'll put you on the on, on the isotopes, we'll put you on this and this, mm-hmm. and you're in charge of the. And no one's the same way with his—
0: And I'll handle the theoretical department. Yeah.
1: It's yeah. Oppenheimer. I'm yeah. gonna take theory. I'm gonna put a great cast together. I'm gonna put together a great cinematographer, a VFX team that's gonna blow you out of the water, uh, a great composer who's gonna. The music in this film is very almost David Lynchian of mm. horror and majesty. Uh, I can't wait till we get to the Trinity sequence because, like, that, like, sharp, like, the, the strings. Yeah, you feel like you're like you're just like on the edge of your seat there with like what they're able to do with music. But it's it's not just one guy making the film. Like I think Nolan knows, like in order for me to make the best product possible, I gotta surround myself with the best people possible. His brother's not on this though, is he? It's a Nolan solo joint, right?
0: Interesting. Yeah. Because his brother usually helps a lot with the writing. The
1: last thing that they uh, co wrote together was Interstellar. So okay. Dunkirk, Tennant, and this one have just been just been him.
0: Okay. Maybe his brother's busy.
1: Yeah. Uh, okay, so that's one conflict. The the teller, the the setting the uh, atmosphere on fire, which he goes to Einstein saying, is this possible? Could we do this? And what did you think of that scene? You know, Einstein's walking in this forest with like, he's like Father Marin and the exorcist, right? Mm-hmm. Is that guy, other guy a Nazi? That guy trying to bring
0: Einstein to the other side. It felt like it, and the first time I he mentioned, I thought he said his name was Goebbels.
1: Yes, yeah, so something. I was, like, I was like, Joseph Goebbels. Yeah, I was like, that guy, that's not. It wasn't Goebbels. There's right. no way. Uh, but that guy looked like he belonged in Raiders of the Lost Star. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. So there was something sinister going on there. But Einstein's like, if you do the math, you'll be able to, you know, find the appropriate answer. Look at the science. We'll tell. We'll give you the answer. And I like that he hands it back to him. Is like, this is yours, Robert. Like this journey, this path you're on. Is yours, not mine. So I'm gonna take I'm gonna take a step back. And I think Einstein even knows, man. He's a man at
0: a time. Like he, he was 1915 to 20s, right? Does Einstein have an ax to grind with Oppenheimer? Because the speech about the award that they throw for him is very, very poignant. I oh, think. yeah, that's great.
1: Uh an axe to grind? I don't know if it's an axe to grind, but a lesson to be learned about what you've unleashed to upon the world, right? Do you think those two men like each other? Uh, I think there's some... Com- at least what the film portrays it as is, I think there is some friendly camaraderie between them, but
0: maybe a bit of... Frenemies? Oh, there you go. That's well said. Yeah. Because Einstein is... Okay, so in this really first big scientific crisis we come to in the film, which is these neutrons are going to collide into other atoms, which is going to cause an explosion. And that explosion is going to release more neutrons and they're going to collide into other atoms. And we're just going to have this, this chain reaction of explosions. So Teller's math says the entire atmosphere is going to be burned up. Okay. So Oppenheimer then needs to check the math. Probably is capable of doing it, but that's not his specialty. So he goes to not really a mathematician either Einstein, but he hands him the piece of paper And Einstein kind of gives him like, I can't be bothered with this in the labor that you want me to do because kind of fuck you. Who do you think you are to sort of take my ideas, disprove them, you and Bohr both, Mm -hmm. disprove them, antiquate me, and then bring me back into the fold? So I'm not going to do your labor, but I will give you some theory because now I want to play in your space. Mm -hmm. And so here's some theory for your, your quantum theory. And that's, What are you doing, Mm. essentially? Do you recognize the totality of what this endeavor is? Yeah, and I think
1: Einstein realizes, like, I need to wash my hands of this because if if they pull me into it, they're going to say, well,
0: Einstein helped build the bomb, right? And I don't even know if he's entirely North American sympathetic either. Yeah. I'm not saying he's a communist, but Mm -hmm. there is a line in there about leaving his country. Mm -hmm. And then later he gives the same line to Oppenheimer, which is just wash your hands and basically tell him to pound sand. Turn your back on it, yeah. Turn your back on your country, because this is bullshit. Mm -hmm. And then Oppenheimer gives, I think, a really patriotic line that's important, which is, I love this country. But nonetheless, back to the Oppenheimer-Einstein. He loves New Mexico. He does. (laughs) Another on the fringes, I wouldn't say antagonist, but a little bit of opposing force. I don't think Einstein's happy they're doing this. Because what does Einstein finally tell him? Mm -hmm. He says, if the calculations on this are right, and just just crunch the numbers until you come to it, you guys have to get on the horn of Germany right now Mm -hmm. and tell them, look, this is what we found. We in this cannot destroy the world. Yeah, we got to stop. And he's right. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that would happen or not because the military brass would not allow that to ever go down. Mm -hmm. War complex and such. It's a different podcast, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But he's right.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he has a fantastic line in the final scene of this of this film. We'll get to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so the other element. Okay, so okay, okay, we're gonna ignite the atmosphere, and so they they do the calculations, like, oh yeah, it's near zero, and I'm like, uh, okay, that's I guess that's good to progress. Yeah, <laughs> about to find out. Let's talk about the Gene Tatlock stuff. So in the midst of all this, you know, they're still meeting up, having flings. He's bringing her flowers. She's like, "What are you doing?" Like, just leading her along here to the point where he's like, "I can't come back anymore. I have to move on." And sometime after Christmas, uh, uh, she kills herself, mm. maybe, mm. right? And, you know, he takes this pretty hard. What's his solace is to be in nature. And, like, he's just huddled up against the mountain. And this is where we get that great Emily Blunt line, which is they found her in a bathtub. She had taken pills. She wrote a letter or whatever, killed herself. And she says, you don't get to sin, and then everyone gets to feel sorry for you. Mm-hmm fantastic line. Amen. <laughs> so good. Amen. Uh, and she said, there's a lot of people depending on you. And if you're going to let this little shit, you know, disrupt this huge project,
0: you're pull full- yourself together. Yeah,
1: exactly. I think a, a great moment for her.
0: I love that. Yeah. You don't get to sin and then everybody feel bad for you. The martyrdom. Now let's talk about the, the, the part oh. that you and I both missed, right? Did it not? Yeah. To my, to my wife and mm-hmm. credit to her. Cause she picked it up. I didn't see it. Can I tell you one thing real quick? And I I
1: think I came to a realization on Nolan's, how I've watched his films in the theaters. Mm. I think my initial viewing of every film of his I've seen, the first viewing is letting the film come to me and just let it wash over me and Mm -hmm. hit me hard. Yep. Viewing two is, okay, let me go in and like really get into the nitty gritty with all these scenes and sequences because it's a lot to take in on a first viewing. 100%. Sensory, story, just everything going on. You know, Inception was like that. Dark Knight was like that. Interstellar was like that.
0: And so... No, it's not a let's just go watch a movie and never think about it again kind of experience with it. It's work. And I'm I, fine with that. Yeah. I like film work. On Yes. <laughs> yes. Not in a theater that was face of the sun hot like it was last night, but... Um, Dude, we were sweating from intensity and whew. maybe lack of AC. <laughs> the <laughs> AC was not working in there. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so Gene Tatlock, right? Yes. Man, in a very Monroe-esque CIA feel to it. Mm. The unfinished suicide letter that's not quite completed. The pills in her system that didn't have enough time to fully be synthesized and actually shut down the system. And then in a great catch, as she's struggling in the bathtub, which we think she drowns herself initially, we see two long cloaked hands that are definitely not hers because your hands don't grow out of the back of your neck. Stuffing her face into the bathtub water, which one can only deduce, and I have a good story for you about this a little bit later, that the CIA knows exactly what's going on and they'll be damned if they're going to continue to let Oppenheimer fraternize with an avowed communist, with the most important race of all mankind at stake. So did Gene Tatlock commit suicide? Mm, He thinks so but the movie presents a far different outcome.
1: And ambiguous.
0: I don't think... Yeah, we was, don't know who it is, don't but she's definitely not drowning herself under that kind of force. Watch closely, you'll yeah. see it.
1: Oh, yeah, it was like Daria Argento came in and directed that scene, this black-gloved killer. Mm-hmm. Wild, yeah. like yeah, yeah, Those are just details that I think you you just, you just miss, or they happen so fast, but I think it adds to the complexity of the scene at hand, yeah. right? Whether suicide or suicide by force. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty major. Yes. And so, okay. Okay. Igniting atmosphere, mm-hmm. uh, CIA interference potentially. Then we get this crazy scene where, you know, he wants, dude, him and Dane DeHaan are going toe to toe. This whole middle section of the film, dude, that guy does not like Oppenheimer. No. There's a delay on his security clearance He wants this particular scientist to come be the liaison. He's like, "Eh, well, uh, we're going to have him drafted. We need him. He doesn't need to be fighting. We need him here. Well, go talk to them at the the thing. So he goes to the school, and he's like, I need to talk about this thing. And then he gets into this whole conversation about, like, the unionization, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it was this guy. And then he ends up, you know, really sticking his foot in his mouth with Casey Affleck and this story just to get the hell out of there. Yeah. Fantastic acting by Killian Murphy in this thing because he knows he's kind of been caught in this like web of like deconstruction, right? Mm-hmm. And makes up this story and Matt Damon's like, what the fuck are you talking about this guy for? Like, what, what are you telling him? Like, they're, they're going to they're gonna shut you down now. Like, what is going on here?
0: Yeah, he basically says, you have to be more strategic than this. You can't just go in there and outthink this guy. This guy has killed communists himself, like choked them out. Mm-hmm. So he enters the lion's den and then in a space that I don't think he's particularly great at, which is espionage Mm -hmm. tries to outthink the master decode decoder of espionage Pash. Yeah. Casey Affleck, like you said. Mm -hmm. And by the time that thing's done, he's in a far worse position that he never entered because he, he willingly went into that office.
1: Exactly. Yeah. He's like, I'll meet you in the morning. I'll come in. I was like, he just set himself up for
0: failure. And we're gonna find out later they recorded this
1: conversation, right?
0: And this goes back to the Josh Hartnett sort of introduction with those two coats or suits that show up mm-hmm. from some higher level peer, higher level group in uh, United States government that's overseeing something, and they won't take the meeting until he leaves. Mm-hmm. So on the way out, he tells, "Oh God, Bush." Mr. Bush, Dr. Bush. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I'm in Pasadena, I will blah 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 blah. Come see you. Yeah. And that's that. Mm-hmm. That's him trying to prove to the forces that be mm-hmm. that he's a worthy or worthwhile American asset mm-hmm. and that he's red, white, and blue. There's no red there. Call me red. Talk
1: about a paranoid time, man. I mean, like, yeah, and you can't even fart, and they're just like communists. <laughs> you can't,
0: Jesse. Yeah, you can't even consider, even in an intellectual, which could be a fun discussion. Yeah, extol the virtues and um, failures mm-hmm. of non-democratic yeah. or republic thinking. Yeah, if it's not democratic and capitalist, you're fucking red, man. Yeah. What? Mm-hmm. Okay, so. That's Joseph McCarthy's era. And, I mean, could you imagine trying to be (laughs) off the subject for a minute? Yeah. Imagine being in the position with the background that you have of Oppenheimer with Joseph McCarthy and J. Edgar Hoover. Breathing down your neck. Oh, my God. Yeah, hell no. (sighs) Anyway, yeah, back to the.
1: Well, so there's that. And, you know, so to kind of see that he has an ally in in Groves. Groves goes to bat for him and Mm -hmm. reassigns Casey Affleck, right? Yeah, to Germany. But then Groves has his own agenda, too, which is like, I want you in Los Alamos. Don't leave this town. And Oppenheimer's going to well, Michigan or Chicago or wherever Chicago. Where the, yeah, the plutonium is. He's like, why did you go there? Like, he, like, I need you here. Like, we need, you know, like, Oppenheimer's like, I need oversight over all the stuff to make sure everything gels, right? Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I just – I love all this stuff at Los Alamos. I love that they actually built this, like, recreation of this little community yeah. that they they, they, they they have a bar. The bar is open 24-7. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, man, because all these scientists had to be hard drinking. Hey, Matt, what's the over-under on uh, cigarettes that Oppenheimer smoked? Is it over-under
0: 100 cigs in this film? Oh, yeah. He's a three-pack-a-day guy, man. I he's he's got a he's burning one in his, a heater the whole time. He's
1: got one in his finger in every scene, I think. We are
0: laughing. He's in the middle of class burning burning one in front of his students. I, I get a pipe that sort of feels academic, but mm-hmm. just an old cigarette. It <laughs> oh, smokes we, like a we chimney. We didn't talk about two, and I thought this was a pretty cool scene when his
1: uh, David Krumholtz, his uh, kind of Jewish friend that he meets on the train, right? Yeah. Uh, other Billy of mine who early on is like, I don't want to be involved in a project that's going to create what you're going to create right so
0: many innocent people he says it
1: and tells him like yeah this town I think maybe it'll come together what's your plan you know uh, you got to take that military garb off be yourself and we get this really cool I almost want to call it the superhero suit up sequence Mm -hmm. of Oppenheimer Mm -hmm. the hat Mm -hmm. the pipe the jacket and then when he comes out there it's like this introduction of the man the myth the legend yeah that you would see in a superhero film, it's like it's Batman suiting up, right? That's so great, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yep, donned in his coke mm-hmm. cloak with his cape. But we're getting close, and I think we're gonna. Oh, okay, so then the, the the whole spy aspect, the Casey, it brings up this spy, and it's shown juxtaposed with the the fusion sequences with Strauss. You had a spy in Los Alamos, and we get this great tabletop conversation of like they lit the starting gun who was it who got out there can we build an h bomb like
0: are they building a thing like what's going on the paranoia just around that right well they've come into knowledge of some tests that the russians have been conducting in the adriatic sea mm-hmm. maybe that's why i forget what they said yeah but they've they've discovered that there's radioactive fallout in the middle of this large body of water which is not possible unless a test was conducted there well the united states didn't do it mm-hmm. Who else at that time has the capabilities? I guess the Russians. If it got out, what the hell happened? No, there was no spies there. We're coming to find out that Oppenheimer was wrong, Mm -hmm. and there was a spy there. But in the fusion part, the black and white happening now piece, or almost to now, Mm -hmm. who's your friend? Nobody.
1: Mm -mm. Yeah, they're all out looking for blood. They all want to blame somebody, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So you have that going on. And then okay, we're getting close to the test, but now we got one other thing that's gonna be a barrier for us. Germany surrendered. <laughs> so we're built this bomb to go annihilate the Nazis in Europe. Yep. Hitler's dead. They found his corpse. Uh, they've surrendered. So do we keep building? And we have the argument now of the Japanese will not stop until they invade the mainland, right? Mm. Uh, unless their mainland's invaded. A lot more people are going to die before that's happened. So you have people at Los Alamos saying, uh, maybe we should pump the brakes, Oppenheimer, I think has a pretty good line here is, these people won't understand what they've built until they've used it, right? They won't understand the gravity of this power until they've actually used it. And I think he's hoping in a test, not in actual practical use. And then, you know, we're getting close. Uh, I think you wanted to mention something. So, Groves is like, we got to do this before the Potsdam Conference. Uh, July is when we're testing this thing. Uh, 15. Yeah. July 15. He's like, I got to bring my brother in here, much to your chagrin, right? Wait, was that when this movie was released, by the way? Was it released on July 15th? No, July 21st.
0: That's kind of a miss, but okay, keep going.
1: Uh, no, I think July uh, 16th was like... A Tuesday. A Tuesday. It's
0: a weird day to release okay. a movie, yeah, right? Yeah. All right. Uh so he's like, I got
1: to bring my brother in. He's going to build this tower for us. We're going to get ready to prep the bomb. Uh, and we're, what are we going to call it? We're going to call it Trinity. And I think you said you had a little something to, to that too. So
0: the choice of the name Trinity is from a poem introduced to him by Tadlock. I believe it's by Whitman, but it's, I'm, don't quote me on that, but it's by somebody, someone like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not a poet and I don't read poetry. so. But the Trinity is in reference to a poem that he fell in love with that Tadlock I'd given him at an earlier point in their uh, scientific, passionate relationship. Mm-hmm. So, three-headed, three-headed God, I think is what he says. Yeah, I mean, the man's just, again, suffocating mm-hmm. with regret and expectation and genius and brilliance. Absolutely tortured individual. Mm-hmm. Tortured. So then we have the scene, right, where we got to go pick a
1: date. So we go meet with all these suits and we got to talk about the pros and cons of what we're going to do.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh well, where are we going to drop it? Well, we got 12 cities. And eh, take that one off cuz I like the honeymoon there, dude. Fuck that guy. Kyoto. Yeah. <laughs> um can we demonstrate the test to the Japanese and then maybe hope they surrender based off of, of that? Like can we film it? Can we bring some reps to show which something they actually wanted to do? But then they had the conversation. Well, if it's a dud, we lose all leverage, right? I mean, these are all really good things that they're all bringing up. And Oppenheimer's like, if we use this, he's already thinking ahead. He's thinking the unlimited power that this is going to provide a nation. How can we regulate that? You know, post drop. I I think that's a very fascinating sequence. You know, the bombers like we can't let them. We can drop leaflets ahead of time, which is something that they actually did. But then they're going to be gunning for me. I'm going to be up in that plane. Like everyone's looking out for their own ass, right?
0: Yeah. Uh, It's hard to figure a way to reconcile creating the most powerful weapon the world's ever seen and then using it twice against an enemy that's not the same enemy it was even a month ago. When I was a young man, myself and my father had this conversation. And Mm -hmm. um, it was in the middle of, you know, my fear of, you, the United States and Russia, each blowing each other up. I, I'd seen some statistic or read something that between the combined capability of the United States and Russia nuclear, mm-hmm. we had the power to blow up the world seven times over something. And it just, it, it terrified me. Well, you, and you grew up in the era of the day after, right? Well, that was what the the launching point was, mm-hmm. was that fucking film. Yeah. So here's my introduction into nuclear winter and all of those things. Mm-hmm. And so I was talking to my you dad. Doing, you
1: doing bomb uh, drills in school?
0: Yeah. Not many. Mm-hmm. Um, that was right on the tail end of it. But yeah, we did have a, a couple here and there. Mm-hmm. So that led into a discussion with my dad about this, and it walked back to this: the atomic age and, and where it came from. And you know, my dad said that Eisenhower had to make the choice oh, to Truman. I'm sorry, Truman had to make the choice to finish off the war because there were a lot of you know the, the same was here. American lives were at stake. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, dad, wasn't Germany the main, and I'm like a third grader, Yeah. The our main villain in World War II? And he's like, yeah, World War I and World War II, but they were already kind of done by the end. And I said, oh, some can what, dad, what? Yeah. He said, well, it was down to basically Japan. And I said, well, what about Russia? And he said, no, Russia was our friend at that time. And now my head is like, what, what? Yeah. Okay, so he said, Everybody in the town and the circles that he ran in at that time, which was he lived, grew up in Kansas. So we're yeah. talking middle America mm-hmm. farmer believed that it was only a matter of time until Japan surrendered because they were just running out of resources. Mm-hmm. Now surrendering for Japan might be a little longer in the tooth than it would be for most nations. Cause they were going to, you know, like, a couple more years, a couple more years. Look at the kamikazes. We're in such a state. We can't teach you how to land this or so just fucking fly it into a ship. Yeah. Like that's, that's the truth. Mm-hmm. It, it was a time element. Yep. And so I said, well, you know, he dropped the bomb. And then I said, oh, and that finished. He's like, no. And then a couple days later, they dropped another one. And my head was like... And I could even, in that discussion with him, remember him telling me how troubling it was to reconcile once, which was more than enough, and the second one to send a message to everybody else, which was important looking back on it at the time.
1: We can keep doing this. We can
0: keep doing this. Yeah, I think the the plan was... Two
1: every, every other week. Until they sign surrender. Until they stop. Until they say, we're done. Can you imagine? Like no. 12 of those potentially going off? No. J- Japan's uninhabitable at this point.
0: It's just a rock anyway. I don't think there... This, so it's barely, what I'm saying, is barely habitable as it is. This is
1: quite the conundrum of the 20th century, right? Which yeah. is, what, was this a good decision? Was this not a good decision? And how much do you think... You know the question of the film of the day of what we've talked about. How much do you think ego played into this too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I, yeah, I don't know a lot about Truman, but is it a little bit of a like
0: a flex moment for Truman of like, <laughs> well, on the throne of greatness, mm-hmm. heavy is the crown. Yeah, and boy, all of these players, with the exception of Strauss, mm-hmm. are really, really experiencing that. Mm-hmm.
1: You know I think it's fascinating, you know there's been some commentary about the film coming out of like, well they don't go into the, you know, the stuff with like the Japanese sequences and are like, well yeah cuz yeah we don't we don't want to see that actually. That's going to make this all like an even more horrific experience. Well the film's not called Hiroshima. Though. Exactly, it's a character piece, right? I mean they could make potentially make another film about that which would be a very difficult watch. And that, I'm out I'm I'm out. I'm I, I don't them. know if I could watch that. Uh and there's been, you know, I think this is a silly criticism because I think Nolan handled, handles it per- perfectly. The scene when they're showing Oppenheimer and the crew the footage of like, oh, well, this is what happened to the, the the clothing like burned into their skin. And he's like not looking. Some people are like, well, we should show it so we know the full. No, watching his reaction shows you exactly what that stuff looks like. And if you want to go look it up, go just go Google it. You can see what the, those photos look like. Yeah, He did a tactful approach to horror, which I can definitely appreciate. And, you know, if you want any more evidence, if you want to see the the kind of opposite effect of this, you know, go back and listen to our Godzilla OG episode that we did two years ago. Mm -hmm. Because that film is an entire metaphor and response to this event. And you see the real horror of what those people went through. I mean, it's an atomic monster that I'm wearing a shirt of today. But you see that it wasn't a laughing matter, that it was... The consequences there were different than the the, the consequences of guilt here. Mm-hmm. The reality of it happened there. So yeah, I think we're yeah we're in a, a weird strange space here, but we have to get to it right. And mm-hmm. so it's the Trinity test. We got this great moment of him and Emily Blunt of like, well, I can't tell you. Oh, the bomb was a success, but I'll I'll tell you. I was like, you know, bring the sheets in if we were successful. If not, I'll tell you something else. Uh,
0: Very edible.
1: It's funny that they don't kiss goodbye. Go break a leg is what she tells him, right? Like these two are, have an interesting
0: relationship to say the least. Partnership more than Mm -hmm. lovers, I guess. I don't know. Yeah.
1: Well, let's talk about this Trinity test sequence here. Uh, You know, it's raining, it's storming. You know, there was was risk of like, well, if, you know, the lightning hits that thing, is it going to go up? Probably, right? Yeah. (laughs) I can't imagine. Yeah. Is the thing going to detonate? They're all taking side bets on, you know, how what the kiloton wattage is going to be. Some side bet action on... Uh, Atmospheric Inferno. Holy crap. Uh, and I, and I, they don't go into this in the film, but in reality, Groves did have to alert the New Mexico governor at the time. There's a potential for a cataclysmic event that's about to take place. I can't tell you what it's going to be, but... Be ready to run. Be ready for a potential state of emergency. Holy crap. I mean, yeah. The secrecy, the lying, the just the just having to do all this for just this test. Mm-hmm. And then so we get to it, and you know, that's what we get that that line from the trailer, which is, you know, you know, so you're saying there's a possibility that we could ignite. And he's like, oh, near zero. What would you like? Uh zero would be nice. But how are you gonna but even though there's the risk, they still go go through with it, right? Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, I, I felt this on initial viewing, and I think it was confirmed for me last night watching it with you, how loud it was, the music, the the sound. This might be one of the finest scenes I've ever seen in any movie ever. Uh, an all timer, an timer scene compiled here. Uh, just the countdown, the intensity to the countdown, and then the expectation, I think, from the audience is like, oh, my God, it's been so loud up to this point. I'm gonna go deaf when they hit that button, and they Nolan goes the exact opposite, which is silent beauty, uh, ah, shock, and I like that he portrays the weapon, the weaponization, the ignition, as something that is beautiful to these scientific minds. Oh my God, look at that cloud! They're all they're they're smiling. They're looking through their welders' glasses at this thing. He takes his glasses off to actually look at it. The firestorm is just kind of doing this interesting, intricate dance. I don't know other way to call it than kind of beautiful, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And then he delivers the line, right? And I think it's the same dialogue grab from the sex sequence. Yep. I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. And then boy, are we hit with the loudest you just boom. boom. And then that's whore. Mm-hmm. The way that sounds, that sounds like Godzilla in the room. Mm-hmm. And I think reality at that moment has has set in. What did you think of all that? Because I think that's ex- pretty expertly handled.
0: You've got to deliver. Mm-hmm. That's the crowning moment in this film is you want to see the mushroom cloud and that explosion at the Trinity site. And we've been building for that for two hours now. He does it. So many times, lesser filmmakers set up this big, big moment. And instead of delivering, we... Eh, I don't want to say we jump the shark or Mm -hmm. economize the monkeys or any of those things. (laughs) That that happens on occasion sometimes. Mm -hmm. But it just doesn't quite get there. This absolutely gets there. And what I like about it is he realizes that this is so important. We might want to show it multiple times. So we get the version of that cloud through three different sets of eyes, Mm -hmm. which gives us plenty of time, I think, to appreciate the grandeur of what we've been building two hours for. The climax of this moment shouldn't take six seconds, Gene Tadlock. Yeah. It should take <laughs> Sanskrit slowly read yeah. multiple times over and over and over, and we get it and, in spades.
1: And you want to see the success of it. Of course. And then you also want to see the ramifications of it too.
0: What you said with the the boom, the big explosion, the sound of the explosion. Okay, so basic storytelling is build up conflict and then release it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've had two hours of conflict built, and this explosion, this beautiful, fiery, flower is the release of that Mm -hmm. and you get that for a little while and then (laughs) you're brought right back to earth with Mm -hmm. that huge explosion on oh shit we're not out of this yet yeah and what's great is until right now like this very second right now i thought the end of act two was the mushroom cloud Mm -hmm. but it's not yeah it's that shock wave of sound that's almost not quite mm-hmm. fading out of act two to move into act three, because now we have the remaining day after big conflict, which yeah. is when are we going to use it? And then what? Yeah. And then, and then what has just as much fatality to it mm-hmm. as the mushroom cloud. And the, the, you know, the terrible revelation of how many people died in Japan. It's master. Mm-hmm. And again, this is so Nolan. Yeah. Master of story because I've spent hours and hours studying what works and what doesn't, not your 10 beats wrote academic Mm -hmm. ivory tower structure. Mm -hmm.
1: Two quick stories for you. Uh, I've been to the Trinity site. Uh, They open it twice a year for tourists and you can kind of go, there's this obelisk like right in the middle of this site there that says the world's first nuclear device was detonated here on July 16th 1945 and then there's a bunch of other scribbles whatever people patting themselves on the back right yeah. uh <laughs> uh it's stunning it's there's not a lot there there's no like attractions or like museum pieces it's just kind of chain link fence around the ground zero mm. But I got to tell you, I was like, I haven't had this experience a lot, mainly because I haven't been to like a lot of, you know, places of that historical significance. But uh, there's a weird feeling there. And maybe it wasn't the trace amounts of radiation that still exists. And maybe that's why I glow green. Right, Matt? Mm -hmm. Uh, But the only other time I felt that was in Dealey Plaza where Kennedy was killed. Or just like the gravity of history at your footsteps of like this happened here. Yeah. And it's a weird feeling. And I highly recommend anyone go check that out. I mean, good luck going to see that after this film comes out, right? I mean, mm-hmm. everyone's going to be going over there. And then, you know, my dad's parents lived in western New Mexico. And they had a little ranch. Uh, so uh, they were up at, you know, 5, 6 o'clock when they did the test, right? And, you know, my grandmother spoke, you know, repeatedly about, you know, the feeling that the sun had, like, come up for, like, 15 seconds. It was that bright, like full sunrise, like, like now, and then just went dark again. No idea why. Right. Scary. Mm -hmm. And there's a great, uh, testimonial from someone they were driving uh, a little bit north of maybe about 40 miles north of, uh, the Trinity site, uh, that this person was able to, to see the full flash. Everything just lit up and they were like, I'm like, That was stunning. Why was that so stunning? I was like, oh, because uh, my sister was blind.
0: Oh wow!
1: Was still able. It was that bright of the flash was able to reminate some some sort of viscera Mm. for that person's vision. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. Crazy. And so then there's all this sitting and standing around waiting for the results on did they drop the bomb and you know this is kind of where you know he's just kind of a gun for hire right. You know, Groves doesn't call him the second they drop the bomb. It's like the next day, Truman on the radio saying, we dropped an atomic device, and it was successful. And there's this feeling of, like, euphoria around the camp that, hey, we were successful, maybe we'll end the war. And, man, Oppenheimer's like, holy crap, like, we did it. And then we get this fantastic sequence, maybe one of the finest of Nolan's career. If the Trinity site wasn't enough, it's this victory speech, dare I call it? Pep rally? Yeah, pep rally, which is already loud. I mean, In a gym, by the way. Yeah, they're, they're stomping, and it's crazy. And I think he plays to the crowd, which is, let me give them what they want to hear. Painful. Yeah. I bet the Japanese didn't see it coming. Rockish cheers, right? And so all of this, is it starts dissipating, and it's just vibrating background, whiteout, people melting, ashes, and steps in, on the corpse of a baby. Yeah, that's, of a baby. that's gruesome. Uh, and or it's, it's int- shoot through, not on through. And it's interesting because raucous cheers into horrific screams. And you know what, Matt? I don't know if there's a difference between the two in that moment.
0: Yeah, I don't either. And I
1: think that's intentional.
0: Well, the girl that is so joyous mm-hmm. one moment, he looks away, maybe sees the people making out under the bleachers or whatever it is, and then looks back, and now she's on her knees, hands and knees, wailing in agony. Uh, this poor man is having to toe this very, very difficult position of, look what good work we did. And my one regret is that we didn't have it to use on Germany sooner. And everybody's just eating this up. Stendral chamber, Mm -hmm. just losing their minds happy, where they've yet to really come to the realization about what we've just unleashed. Yeah. That girl... Okay, so it goes really. There's all the cheering and the stomping on the ground, which sounds like the explosion of the bomb again, with their mm-hmm. their heels on the wooden bleachers, and then it goes white mm-hmm. and comes back, and we get the same girl that was there before went white, and her skin is peeling off like this. That's Nolan's daughter, actually. Oh my gosh, Jesse. <laughs> yeah. And then there's a couple of other weird moments that sort of happen along there. So you get the people making out under the bleachers, and you get that incident that I talked about with a woman that was previously overjoyed with what seems to be victory and then caught in the you know yeah. terrible terrible tragedy of, of loss and he's trying to decipher where she is. We go outside and we see one of his assistants
1: puking his gut.
0: What struck me on that is that him forecasting the effects of the rays after the atomic weapon or is that guy puking because he realized what they've done? It'd be both. Is that really happening or is he imagining that could be both like a mm-hmm. nuclear winter? Even though it's not nuclear, yeah. we're sort of starting to play in that space because mm-hmm. it snows in there. It snows ash in that gym. Yeah. I mean, he's going through all of the, the forecasts mm-hmm. of terrible outcomes. And as he's doing that in his mind, he's having to pump his fist and raise one up because yay, the USA is great. And we won this race and, all this from a man who once upon a time wasn't probably sold on the entirety of, of the United States. And think about this too, Jesse. Mm-hmm. His big issue in this film with communism has to do with unionization. That's really the extent of it as the movie yeah. presents it. Mm-hmm. Doesn't he look like a labor leader in the middle of that? Yeah.
1: yeah. Rock man, this, I mean, he may as well be Hoffa, right?
0: <laughs> it's just loaded. Yeah. This whole thing is loaded. hmm
1: well, it's about to get even more loaded because act three is all about, you know, chamber sitting and deconstructing the integrity of someone's character. So we cut back and we spend all, most of our time here with Jason Clark in this kind of security clearance briefing. And they bring in every scientist, the teller, uh, you know, Matthew Modine. They bring everyone in to talk. They bring Groves, Casey Affleck, all, the, all these guys that are, they all kind of wax and wane on the support. Some guys are like, I'll bat for you. Matt Damon kind of, sort of bats for him, right? Uh, Teller's like, I would not approve this man for clearance. Uh, there's a lot of animosity there. Uh, Josh Hartnett shows up for hearing and then comes down with colitis. Colitis, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's all really well done. I mean, it's just uh, like, you know, we've talked about a lot. I, like, I hate scenes of people sitting at tables just talking, but the drama and the back and forth and the tit-for-tat that Nolan's able to kind of have these people spouting back and forth the lack thereof information, this mystery thing. Is my wife going to go up there and talk? She wants him like, stop playing the martyr and defend yourself before we lose everything. Mm -hmm. And she has a great moment when she goes toe to toe with Jason Clark here of like, you're going to call me a communist. Yeah. I'll admit I believed in some of those things. That was 18 years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, what are you going to do about it? Like, why is that so much a big deal for this thing now when we've already went through all this and we're clear as day here now?
0: I think it's all handled really well. Uh, And it feels like a trial, but it's really just the approval or denial of his Q clearance, mm -hmm. The putting this man through the ringer that held the secrets of the Trinity site in Los Alamos. Now he's grown through some rudimentary Q clearance and they are killing him mm-hmm. over it. Yeah. And Kitty, his wife, brings it up, I think so appropriately, you're martyring yourself because you think if you let them punish you enough, it will relieve the guilt of what you've created. Well, that's been his closest ally for most of this film, although I think she's a little bit pissed off. Not only mm-hmm. with, I mean, there's, there's the scene where Gene shows up and, Start screwing him in the middle of the yeah, that's the hearing. Yeah, that's she's good. just thinking about what had happened. Mm-hmm. So she's got a little bit to be upset about, but I think as much as that upsets her, she's more upset that he is letting them destroy just run over him, man. his reputation. The truth is he created the device that did end the war. Now we can get into, and we sort of already did, should they, should That's a circular discussion. Yeah. But he holds a monumental place, if for nothing else, the scientific achievement.
1: What about the scene uh, with Truman? Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's pretty interesting because—oh, Gary Oldman, just in this movie randomly now. Yeah, Dude, are you ready to see Nolan's Truman? Because I'd watch that.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: And I don't know a lot about Truman, but, you know, from some of the things I've heard, it sounds a little bit like this, right? Mm-hmm. Not, I don't want to say aloof, but egotistical— yeah, uh, especially picking up the uh, from Roosevelt, right? Dying in office in that fourth term, having to wrap up World War II and then take it into the 50s. Right. And you get this great moment of like, I feel like I have blood on my hands. Like we need to talk about next steps. What do we do with this information? The bomb? What are we going to do? And he's like, hey, w- wait a minute, Oppenheimer. You're like, no one cares who built the bomb. They cared who dropped the bomb. hmm. I dropped that bomb, right? And then actual lines that were were said, documented, don't let that crybaby come in here anymore. (laughs) So, man. (laughs) Ego, right? Even the ego of Truman in that instance, oh, I'm not going to let you take credit for the casualties. This isn't about you. It's about me. Okay.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but again, that's,
1: that's not good enough. That, that wouldn't be good enough for me of like, okay, that guy's going to say, yeah, everyone will take responsibility, but I still
0: built the fucking thing. Right. 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 Tough. Mm-hmm. And, and the one man at this point that I think has seeded his ego is Oppenheimer and is mm-hmm. trying now to act for the better of society.
1: Yeah. Mankind.
0: And he's talking about making concessions with the Russians and, you know, being transparent in what the production is because this is headed towards a terrible, terrible end. Uh, Truman's so stupid. He says they don't have the capabilities to produce such a thing, mm-hmm. but we have proof that they already. I mean, it's, yeah, they will. <laughs> the executive branch looks silly in this mm-hmm. and egotistical. Yeah. If that's how you want to be remembered, then I guess so. And it is, Harry. That's yeah. how you're remembered. Mm-hmm. So let's wrap up the Q clearance and then we'll
1: wrap up with Strauss right here. So, yeah. you know, after all this tit for tat, this kind of back and forth, uh, the ultimate realization of this Q clearance scene is he's denied. It's just we've heard enough, we've seen enough. Uh, we can't allow you to be involved at this level anymore.
0: Thank you for your help. We appreciate what you did. We're not going to renew your Q clearance. Yeah. Here's, okay. Here's here's a gold watch. <laughs> right. Pat on the back on the way out. Yeah.
1: It's kind of sad. I mean, mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I don't know what Oppenheimer's
1: plans were post that. To, you know, further the discussions on nuclear energy? Or- I sort of
0: thought it was to keep his position as chief executive of the AEC, the, AAC, the mm. Atomic Energy Commission, yeah. and that would then allow him to...
1: A little more oversight?
0: Yeah, and maybe help get the word out about exactly how dangerous this game was we were playing And without that Q clearance, so you can't do it. So then the question that sort of is dangling out there is one of the pieces that was written by him was written by that... Dark, I can never remember that actor's name.
1: David Domesticalian. There you go. Yeah,
0: He wrote essentially a hit piece about Oppenheimer, although not intended to be a hit piece. It is slanted. And the question is, who gave him the file that allowed him access into all of Oppenheimer's stuff? So then now that's a bit of a mystery.
1: Go ahead. We'll just reveal the mystery because we're there now. It's Strauss. Yeah.
0: And we come to, as the opportunity to be appointed as secretary of commerce under Eisenhower's cabinet begins to wane. We start to see the breakdown of Strauss's character. And we come to realize that he's been been out of shape about Oppenheimer essentially over three things. Number one, he got no credit mm-hmm. for ever starting him down the road of this at Princeton. Mm-hmm. Number two, he thinks that Oppenheimer upon meeting Einstein at Princeton talks some trash about Strauss, which made Einstein not like him. All he saw.
1: That's the one, right?
0: Which is absurd because there could be 50 million things that they're talking about. And he automatically assumes it's about him again, ego. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is the exportation of isotopes to Norway. Oppenheimer did not before a Senate judiciary now Senate Senate, some Senate committee some sort
1: of hearing, right?
0: said that that might not be the best idea. And not only was it not the best idea, that's just, they're really not all that useful. And in so doing, kind of made Strauss look small, but not really. Mm -hmm. So those three things have been a burr under his saddle for six or seven years. And now that he's about to get appointed to this position as Secretary of Commerce, Certainly his dealings with the possible communist Oppenheimer are going to come back. And he's talking to his chief of staff, which is Han Solo. How do I kind of get around this? And again, as this gets further and further and further away, we start to see not that Strauss did these things to protect his appointment, but essentially kind of pettily stick it to Oppenheimer because he's just a dick. Yeah. I mean that's literally it. This has nothing to do with the hearing. All this happened way before the hearing. Yeah. He just wanted to stick it, to no, it I love that temper tantrum he <laughs> he has in the in the room there. Yeah. He's like he's like he never
1: took credit for Hiroshima or Nagasaki. He's just kind of letting him have it. Uh and then this is where we uh like you know, Rami Malik comes and testifies. And essentially throws him super under the bus, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh all this stuff he did with Oppenheimer and this these hearing and he gave the file and all it, all these people are having to hear this. And I think the thing at play here is that no no one's not been appointed since like 1929. Yeah. It's formality. Right. We just gotta go through the process and through this thing, it just
0: all falls apart, right? Yeah, so he loses a few votes and misses the appointment, and one of the key dissenting opinions is this young junior senator from Massachusetts, John F. Kennedy. Okay,
1: okay, the Kennedy line is, uh, is uh, the way it devolves it is like, yeah, it's this yeah, young junior like, who, who, what was his name? John F. Kennedy. That's like the Joker card reveal at the end of Batman Begins, right? It's just Mike like this, this little, like, pretty cool, right?
0: <laughs> I love that, too, because on the way home, so we took my daughter to see this okay. the first time we saw it, and so... You know, she was asking about Kennedy and of course the assassination came up and as any going to be sixth grader would ask, and this is, this is such a generational take on this. It was so profound. So mm-hmm. the first thing was myself, yeah, my wife, Xers, my daughter, Z, Z, and my father-in-law, Boomer. boomer. So she asked, well, who killed him? And without missing a beat, mm-hmm. my Boomer father-in-law, the Russians, and I was like, Bullshit. Yeah. No way. He's like, what? I said, it's absolutely without question. The CIA there's, there's, it's not even
2: Russia. Mm-hmm.
0: That's the through Lee Harvey. Anyway, it, it was just such a, such a generational take on that. Well, I want to, I want to ask you that I'm glad you brought that. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. That's the the, I, I the, the, the mystery of all mysteries. Right. And sort
1: of, yeah. Uh, yeah, sort of right. Depending on how deep you want to go down that rabbit hole, right. My favorite conspiracy is that uh, Kennedy was going to unveil to the world that UFOs are real, and the CIA was like, "Uh, uh-uh. <laughs> uh yeah." Where was I going with this? Okay, uh, or maybe maybe I'll say this for the end because it's pretty profound. Okay, uh, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, learning about Kennedy and just that whole world and the 20th century—it's just it's fascinating stuff, right?
0: History is just wild. But it brings up a whole conversation that she's not ready for, but that's the the role of the Kennedys even still today mm-hmm. in American society. Like, yeah. there's and that's that's a whole other that's Chappaquiddick and, Camel, Camelot, and right? Robert Kennedy, right now. And there's so oh my gosh, Jesse. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a great line in a movie. Mm-hmm. That's a great, yeah, line. mic drop
1: is the right way to say it. Yeah, and you know, so Han Solo, Alden, uh, Aaron Reich. Dude, he just solo killed his career until
0: maybe it's back. Maybe this,
1: yeah. Uh, tells him, all those days you were concerned about what Einstein and Oppenheimer were talking about, and, you know, maybe they weren't talking about you.
0: Maybe they were talking about something a little more important than you. Which they were, for sure. But to Downey and Strauss, uh-uh, this was the inception that
1: burrowed in his head
0: that drove him crazy, right? Mm-hmm. So denied, denied his position by a couple of votes. Doesn't mm-hmm. get it. Mm-hmm. Good. Bastard deserves that.
1: Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, the showman he is, I don't know a lot about that character, but he just puts on a smile and is like, yeah, I'll go talk to the press, and just, they're going to crucify me, right? Yep. Uh, and so then we get the final scene of the film here, which is color. Every time we've seen the sequence, it's been in black and white. And I think Nolan's playing, again, with the objective and the subjective versions of the color use, right? Mm-hmm. All the black and white stuff hasn't really had uh, a lot of Oppenheimer in it other than it's led by Strauss. Uh, He catches his hat and he's like, oh, you know, how you doing? And this and that, and it's been a while, (laughs) that that kind of conversation. And then it kind of devolves into, uh, you know, a little bit on that, like, you know, turn your back on the country. I don't want to do that. I love this place. I love New Mexico. But then – You know, they'll come around to you. They'll invite you to a state dinner. They'll give you an award. They'll pat you on the back. But it won't be for you. It'll be for them to make them feel important. Mm -hmm. I
0: think that that's still happening to this day, right? Which is what Oppenheimer was accused earlier in the film of Einstein doing Mm -hmm. to him. Yeah. You guys threw a de- dinner for me Give mm-hmm. gave me that award. Yeah. And basically what it was saying is, okay, we've met to meet this. This was once upon a time, really profound. It's not anymore, but let's honor what you did way mm-hmm. back when. Mm-hmm. Same thing's happening to him.
1: Yeah. It's not going to be about the achievement, the scientific, you know, proficiency of what happened. It'll just be for those people to pat themselves on the back that they're honoring the past.
2: Oh my God.
1: Yeah. And he's right. He's uh, right. That makes my skin crawl. Mm-hmm. Uh He's absolutely right. And you know, they, they, they showed the agent thing and that great scene of like, dude, Emily Blunt's been like, dude, why would you shake Teller's hand? Yeah. Dude, she doesn't shake his hand here at this dinner, right? No. Uh, no, uh, it will spread there. Mm-hmm. And then we get this final conversation of like, you remember when I came to you with the document on if we would ignite the atmosphere? And yeah, I remember that. And Oppenheimer's like, you know, we thought we'd destroy the world. I was like, yeah, I, I think we did actually unintentionally. Mm-hmm. Or not, 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 met, not physically, but metaphorically. Mm-hmm. Then we get this fantastic, you know, montage. And Nolan always ends his films on these like montages of like just like different snapshots and sequences. Nuclear arsenal launching is it's the day after, right? It's like like you're, here's like fifty of them going up in the sky. You just see like firestorm across the globe, and it's just a what if, right? It's just what if ego gets in the way. Not just here, over there, over there, over there, over there. If ego gets the better of humanity, is that something that could happen? And I think the film posits is, yeah, it could.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And this is what Oppenheimer was trying to stop, for probably from the get-go, right? The villain and the hero at the exact same time. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that? What do you th- What do you think of the, the the wrapping up of this story?
0: I don't know how you do. The mushroom bomb, how you do something bigger than the mushroom cloud. I don't know how you do that Yeah. other than this. And you leave this. And he does like to play in the what if kind of space. But the what if is, this is a possibility. And as big as the achievement at Trinity was, the potential for disaster going forward dwarfs that. Because you see the globe. And you see all of, like there's been lots of images in the film of Oppenheimer looking at water and seeing the ripple effect of drop into body of water and the way it spreads. And then essentially they take the globe, the map of the globe, and turn in the same thing, and you watch these drops of nuclear power ripple effect miles and miles and miles of geography, Mm -hmm. knowing that that's just absolute glass, wherever, parking lot, wherever it hit.
1: One of my favorite quotes, and I can't remember who said it, I just remember the verb, but maybe you know. Uh, is that World War Three would be fought with nuclear weapons? World War Four would be fought with sticks and stones. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. So true. Yeah, I'll look up who's who said that. That's awesome. It's pretty profound, right? Yeah. It's again, like the, I've been watching. I've been living in the world of Oppenheimer the last couple of weeks now, and like again, the Trinity thing, well, massive in scale and scope, is nothing compared to what the Russians and us have built in the time since. Mm-hmm literally things that will annihilate oh, like cities, states to you. There's no coming back from it. Mm-hmm. That's it, it, horrifying, right? I mean, there's a certain bit of horror there and you know, thankfully there's, there is enough stuff in place to stop that from happening. But you know, all the egos that place in this film, you know, ego gets the best of you, right? Ugh, sadly. Yes. Yeah. So and we end the film. Written and directed by Christopher Nolan. I think everyone in the theater, both viewings, you know, I, I don't know if this is a film that you don't stand up and, like, applaud, right? I think you're just left there to sit and just think on, like, the questions that were just presented before you. Mm-hmm. I think everyone's just in shock at the end of this thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's just like, wow, like, there's a lot to think about and mull over. You're living in Oppenheimer's, you know, reality at that point. Yeah. And that's, I think, Nolan's greatest trick is... Leaving the theater. And there was a couple pockets there. We had a chat with uh, uh, someone sitting next to us. We made a friend last night. Hopefully they're listening today. Yeah. Uh, And then leaving the theater, people stand around and, I think, chatting about the movie. Mm -hmm. And I think that's awesome. I do too. It just, the conversation continues long after it ends. Yeah. Whether positive or negative or indifferent in the gray, uh, it doesn't just die in the theater. It's just like, when you see The Flash, you're like, dude, I'm done. (laughs) I don't need to take any of this out with me. Uh, I'm okay. Morbius, uh, I'm okay. Like, right. Unless you come bring it on the podcast and then in that case you talk about it for another two hours. Mm-hmm. But yeah. here, I mean, this is something that is just, you're just going to keep thinking about it for, you know, day, days on end after. Days and
0: days and days. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, does this have to be seen in the theater for maximum I f- think so. effectiveness? The sound is so important. Yeah. yeah the soundtrack we didn't get into it's beautiful in the movie and it's it's such a network of importance with the scene so i yes i i am fully on board with this as a theatrical viewing at least the first time
1: well before i have a couple questions for you uh let's hear from the man himself i'm just seeing now your friend your collaborator the sixth go around to see what killian how he holds the screen, how he holds this all together because it is yeah. so, as you say, subjective for a good portion of it. Mm-hmm. Um,
3: does anything surprise you of what he can do or what he was able to do when you get into the edit room and you see what he's delivered here? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's it's a peculiar, it's, hard, it's a peculiar process because I've known for a long time, I've known for 20 years that Gillian Murphy is one of the greatest actors of his generation yeah, or all. any generation. And I've had him play key supporting roles in a lot of my films. I've enjoyed that process. So I had a lot of confidence going into Oppenheimer that yeah, he's, he's one of the greats. This is his chance to show what he could do at the center of a, of a big movie like this where the challenge is to carry the audience through the experience, see everything from his point of view. So you're looking for this great empathetic sort of version of the character that can, can draw you into what he's thinking and feeling. Um, but there's a difference between having faith that that can work seeing great work on set every day
2: yeah.
3: but until you actually put it together in the edit suite you don't with a performance as sophisticated as Killian's until you actually sit in the edit suite and watch it come together shot by shot you, you're not aware of all the things he's managed to do and so editing the film was a pretty extraordinary revelation about the power of the performance and the layers he was able to put in, and uh, it's one for the ages. It's an absolutely remarkable piece of work on his behalf that I'm proud to have been a part of.
1: So the last thing, a specific thing on Oppenheimer I, I meant to ask earlier, hmm. the Trinity test sequence, I do want to mention, because I think what you do with sound design in that, and holding back, and kind of like, I'm anticipating no a certain- spoilers,
3: please. Okay, well, okay. <laughs> We don't have to go specific. It, well, it's funny to talk about spoilers in a true life story and, and a thing that, you know, to be inevitable, but I um, But I guess was it um, obvious, like, how you were going to approach that? Because there are a lot of different no, ways you could no, do No, it, it wasn't obvious. The only thing that was obvious is that it had to be a showstopper and it had to be the centerpiece of the film. Yeah, It's a turning point in human history. The turning point in human history. Yeah. And so a lot of effort went into the research, the mechanics, the looking at, okay, how's that going to work together? Uh, and then of course, when you look at the reality and the reality of the physics, there are things that pop up that you have to just embrace and say, okay, rather than maybe what people would expect, the reality is going to be way more surprising and interesting if we can get it across. And so right. then you're challenging, you know, van and Ruth De Jong, a designer. Um, you know, you're looking to your department heads to be able to create an approach to this that people haven't seen before. And my hope is that people get to come to the film fresh, without uh, without knowing everything about how we portray things. Um, yeah. But I mean, you know, who knows? But but yes, I'm certainly an enormous amount of care and attention, and, and a lot of long nights shooting uh, uh, went into that. It was uh, yeah, it was a big deal. Boy.
2: Yeah.
1: Now he said it there, and this was kind of that <clears throat> moment I wanted to to bring up with you. Mm-hmm is the defining moment of the 20th century mm. trinity july 16th 1945 takes place in new mexico mm. at the trinity site i might say yes it's hard to not say yes right now i mean the kennedy assassination pretty big pearl harbor obvious uh the stock market crash you know we're talking stuff state size that affects the whole global thing but yeah. like the entire way of
0: thinking how conflict is viewed war uh arms races uh i think with lasting impact Mm -hmm. with the four you just mentioned this has the largest lasting impact and if we measure history by the impact that it's had on the story that's being told pretty hard to not say yes to that question um 5 30 in the morning and Los Alamos, New Mexico.
1: Well, not Los Alamos, uh, down south. Yeah.
0: Essentially. Yeah. Where there's no one there, you can make the case. Thanks. And we've
1: never, no one's ever attempted to do this film before, right? Nope. Yeah, yeah.
0: to him. Yeah.
1: <laughs> What's your favorite tasty note, moment, sequence, scene of Oppenheimer? Well, it has to be this. It's this. Yeah. Yeah, I'll go with the same, right? I I mean, I said it was one of the finest scenes I've ever seen in a movie. How can it not be? Uh, Really well put together, crafted scene. The actual explosion itself was done practically with no CGI. Mm. Uh, Yeah, that sound, that gut punch. When the sound does hit you, it's a a realization of what's to come, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Give me a second here. I'm curious to hear
0: what yours is, but what's the...
1: moment of Oppenheimer.
0: There's two and they're a bit subtle. One was the Tadlock drowning scene with the hands on her neck. The other was the throwaway one line junior senator from Massachusetts, John F. Kennedy. You like that, yeah. Both of those two to me. uh, And they both, in my mind, work kind of together and what my deductions about them would be. Uh, So... I'm going to give it a tie on both those. Probably the Tad... If I had to say one, the Tadlock bit by just a hair. That's very, very alarming. She's not in the film a lot,
1: but her fingerprints are all, all over this thing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I think that's just to the performance and then just the impact of that character on his character, right? What's yours? Uh, the Pepperelli, mm. Yeah. Cheer and awe to horse sequence. That was just wild on both viewings of... Yeah, there's really no difference between... Rockish cheers and ghoulish whores. Mm. They're kind of the same yeah. in that instance. Yeah. Who's the master distiller on Oppenheimer?
0: Oh, probably because there's more space for this going forward. I'm going to go with the other one. It, it, there's several, but I'm going to give it to Killian Murphy. Uh, we've had a lot of discussions on the show about what happened. Why didn't they get there? Like I said, this could have been, why didn't it get there? It's there now. They, this has got Academy Award all over it and it should it's a terrific performance with a very complex and important figure. He delivers it in spades, and if you watch Oppenheimer talk, they even look alike. He's got his his mannerisms and such down. So, um, yeah, Murphy.
1: I got to go with him too. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, not that the award matters. It's just a nice thing to have on the mantle, right? It's already great in its own right, but man, that that seems like a lock. That seems like I don't know what else. Maybe Napoleon or whatever. If those come out, right? Yeah, Uh, it's a great performance, and what I like about it, it reminds me a lot of like Hannibal Lecter and those really quiet, subtle, nuanced performances that don't have to like we have shout in every scene to just be Mm -hmm. big. He's big in the smallest of ways in that gaunt blue-eyed stare he has in every scene yep. that sense of dread he has from the opening scene to the end of the film mm-hmm. uh it's a very incredible performance that is it's it's not showy it's it's still and silent mm-hmm. and calculated yeah. dude murphy's great and i've known he's been great for a long time but 28 days later the stuff with Batman Begins, uh, you know, as Jonathan Crane, guy's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I even remember too, like years ago when we started writing. I mean, you had written something prior to me jumping on board, this psychological serial killer thriller, and, you know, you let me read it, and it was it's fantastic. And thank you. I always I always asked you. I was like, well, who do you imagine playing this guy? He was who you always mentioned. Yeah, yeah, be perfect. Uh, yeah, he would be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Be yeah. yeah. How are you going to rate and grade Oppenheimer? Based on whiskey, our our rating system, we have Rotgut, the worst of the worst. Well, okay, but yeah, we probably won't drink that again. Call, you know, pretty standard, standard fare. Uh, Single barrel, the unique of uniqueness, unique whiskey, unique films, once in a lifetime, and then top shelf, the tippy top, the best
0: of the best. Where are you going for Oppenheimer? This is top shelf. It's the best movie of the year. This might be in the contention for the best movie in the last number of years. I'd have to go back and see everything that might fall into that category. It's an expertly delivered piece. It's not schlocky. It's serious. It knows what it's doing. It's not afraid to deliver it in a serious tone. The performances are outstanding, and it's in the hands of an expert storyteller in Nolan. I don't know. It, it's, it's perfect. It's a perfect film. Mm-hmm. Top shelf with the bullet. Top Pappy, shelf. This is Pappy Van Winkle.
1: Yeah. Top shelf for me too. Uh, it's my second favorite Nolan film oh, wow. at the moment. Uh, on initial viewing, I had it in number four. Last night, it went up to two. Mm. I don't know if anything's ever getting to one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, it's a remarkable piece of filmmaking. Uh, what I really like about it too is it doesn't seem like it has a political agenda. Right. Like when you yeah. see like... Uh, JFK, there's kind of an agenda at play there. Even though I think that film is highly entertaining in the way it's told, Mm -hmm. there's ways information is presented to get a certain point across. And I don't think Nolan ever tries to do that with his films. It's like, here's the story you go interpret it in the best way that the viewer needs to. Mm -hmm. And I like that about his filmmaking. It isn't, we're not making a film for a purpose. It's to tell a story and, Damn, this is this is the story of all stories. I, I I'm still blown away. I mean, the opening weekend numbers—a three-hour biopic history lesson, eighty-two million dollars. No one else can do that. No, I don't. Spielberg couldn't do that today. Scorsese couldn't do that today. Uh, he's the only person. Mm-hmm. It's his third biggest opening outside of a Batman film. It's awesome. In the middle of summer, when we're supposed to be watching spectacle, and this is spectacle on a different level.
0: Well, this is the first huge sort of opening since COVID. Yeah. What's unfortunate is those days are numbered now <laughs> because we're in the middle of lots of labor issues. Yeah. But it felt like last night, although the air conditioning wasn't working, it felt like summer tentpole, big crowd event. Mm-hmm. And it's been a while. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. End game, maybe? Maybe.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's true. But the game. That, yeah. But the fact that we're sitting there and it's like we're sitting at tables watching people talk, uh, come up with equations, uh, mm-hmm. you know, have affairs. Mm-hmm. Hey, we're not blowing up the universe in a way. Uh, yeah. We're not, you know, you know, putting on CGI suits. We're not going to space. We're not doing crazy stuff. It's it's a different type of nuanced spectacle. Yeah. The only person I think in the business that can deliver this. You're right. That's why we're doing the cask on the guy. That's right. Uh. To so, him. So to that, to him, to that, to the film, let's wrap this up with our nightcap. And we'll let this music play for a little bit because, you know, we didn't get to talk about it. Okay. Okay. Spoiler alert that's the piece of music that plays during the final end of the world montage so to speak yeah. right uh just what's going through his head is missiles annihilation firestorm and then it ends with that just that lone violin going like yeah leave that lingering right mm. strings <laughs> uh nightcap question uh Pretty pretty easy this week. We're going to do one entry, but, you know, he's done two historical films, Dunkirk and Oppenheimer now. But what's one uh, historical event, moment, sequence, year span that you
0: would give Nolan free reign to just go for it, do it? Yeah. Treaty of Versailles. I want to see each of the contingents of the participating nations wrestle with the absurdity of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points and get a behind. like it, He does have a chapter element to his films, mm-hmm. even in this. Yeah, And even if it's not chapter with Fission versus Fusion, there is a black and white. He likes to chapter it. And what I'd like to do is spend a little bit of time with each delegation's contingent. And then what you can do is you can have the interactions of one bleed into another. And although they're separate, they're all sort of loosely interconnected till we get to the final vote. And... How that ends up playing out, United States abstaining to even sign off on the damn thing, um, yeah, I want that. That'd be cool, and it would just be I mean, there's there'd be an, an element of espionage in there, but it would this would be a very heavy, talky kind of film. Mm-hmm. There's just not a lot of action that's happening at the Palace of Versailles where this is occurring, mm-hmm. but I think the stakes could be great if it's especially is as, as we talk about those fourteen points. How it played into the historical reasoning for why they came up mm-hmm. from the countries and how they affect them. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, I want to see that film. Yeah, even
1: that moment, dude. Let him do all World War One, right? Yeah, <laughs> from Archduke uh, Franz Ferdinand. Mm-hmm. Oh my God,
0: yes. Through the war yes. to that, like that could be fantastic. The shit show of how they luckily killed him could be such a good movie if someone would do it right. Mm-hmm. That was. a, a joke that that ever happened, but it happened. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm dying to hear yours. Uh, story of Jack the Ripper. Oh man. Yeah. Good one.
1: I know they made, you know, From Hell with Johnny Depp, but you know, that's based on the Alamo whatever. whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I, I think Insomnia just, you know, I think there's some untapped, you know, true crime thriller, serial killer aspect that works really well in that film with Robin Williams. Uh, but imagine 1870, 80s uh, London, cobblestone gaslight streets done by nolan it's going to look like the prestige but with the procedural element of trying to find this killer often women and prostitutes in london at that time i think he could slay that project i do
0: too yeah that's a good one nice choice i mean if you
1: want Downey in there as the investigative element trying to bring this guy down that would be awesome zodiac like
0: Mm -hmm. oh it's good jesse that's great
1: yeah that was the one, it instantly jumped to the, you know, the, just the forefront. I was like, I would love to see that story. Mm. I think would be a lot of fun. Love it. Good. Yeah. Any honorable mentions? That was that was primarily the one that came up. That's the one that came up. Yeah, I don't think, I don't know if I have one unless I really, really thought about it. Uh, but excellent. I, we're in a real good space right now. Just talking about, you know, this director, his particular style of filmmaking. Uh, and we're going to come back next week with a big one. One uh, we've talked about a lot on the podcast. and We've never done it. Uh, when we did our all decade list, I think it was uh, flip-flopped for us. I think it was one for me, two for you. Mm. But I think as we say on the thing, on the given day, I mean, could be number it could one. be number one on just what whatever. Uh, from 2010, Inception. Yes. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of conversation, the story, the spec. We'll have to do, I think, another little bit. Not on screenplay structure, but we need to let the audience know what a spec screenplay is again. Yeah. And why this particular film was so rare. Dude, raking in eight hundred million worldwide. Wow. Uh but just the the visuals, the the story, the characters. Yeah, I can't wait to talk about this with you. This is gonna be this is gonna be a great time. That's gonna be a blast. Yeah. Uh hopefully that yeah, next week's episode won't be a dream, but mm. Until then, you know, hit us up uh, at ricemileproductions at gmail.com. Uh, you can go to Tee Public, get, you know, Ricemile merch. Uh, I think there's some Oppenheimer shirts. If you want an Oppenheimer shirt, go get it. Um, a Memento shirt, you know, all, all those kind of things. You go down the rabbit hole, not even for the podcast. You just go down the Tee Public rabbit hole, right? Ew, it's trouble. And you end up with shirts. You're just like, look what I bought.
0: Johnny Utah's surf club. Yeah, there you go.
1: It's all the fun graphic tees there. But yeah, go hit up again. Yeah, you can get any merch on put on a coffee mug, you know, a shirt, a notebook, you know, whatever suits your fancy. But uh yeah, until then, thank you for listening. Uh uh, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, but I gotta get going. Uh I gotta go do some math homework. Uh, but man, just I'm telling you, uh I had to take math 120 in college, not once, not twice, three times Oof. before I finally passed that class. I took it in person. I took it online. I took like an intercession c- class to take the exam again, dude. It was brutal. So yeah, math ain't my strong suit. But hey, dude, ask me about Batman, dude. I'm your guy. <laughs>
0: I'll bring the sunscreen and make sure it's rubbed in.
1: Oh. <laughs> Thank you, dude. dude. we need to talk about Jack Quaid and his bongos. Dude, that was killing me, dude. That, that that guy, you know that guy. Yeah. Just bringing that instrument. Doesn't know what the hell he's doing. But it, it somehow fits that that science landscape. Weirdos. Ladies and gents, go
0: see this film. We'll see you all next week. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark.
1: Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there. It really helps out the show. And for Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. Oppenheimer is property of Universal Pictures, Syncopy Inc., and Atlas Entertainment, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time,
3: cheers. You are the man who gave them the power to destroy themselves, and the world is not prepared. (laughs)
1: Truman needs to know what's next.
2: Two. What's next? One.